You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Happy New Year, Will. Happy New Year, David. Happy New Year, listeners, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast annual tradition end of the year Q&A. Every year when we get to this time of the year, which is to say the end of it, Mm -hmm. we like to gather up a whole bunch of questions submitted by our listeners for us to just answer in a big old question answering extravaganza (laughs) to wrap up the year. Just like previous years, we put up a form where listeners could submit their questions. It was up for a month. We received tons of questions. Yeah. We are going to follow the same format that we have in the past. We took the list of questions, randomized the order, and we are going to just go through and take turns asking questions, answering questions, and we'll see how much we get through. Yes. We have a time limit for ourselves in mind so that we're not here until the next year. Yeah. (laughs) And we'll see how many we get through before we run out of steam completely. This is always a ton of fun. Thank you to everybody who has asked us questions. Shall we jump into it? Indeed. I'll go first. Our first question for this year's end of the year Q&A comes from Juice, who asks, If I find a new species of ant, how do I verify it's not one of the already discovered species of ants? Is there a Pokedex for this? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not a Pokedex per se, but kind of. There are features for species, you know, for, for groups of organisms, there are going to be features that you distinguish new species by, you know, depending on the group, depends on what you might look at. You know, some it might be the shape of the head, some it might be the shape of, you know, a particular feature, but, or whether or not they have a thing, but usually there will be data sets mm-hmm. of those features for the currently known and named species that's what you would need to compare the this new ant against. Right. Oftentimes we'll identify features that help us narrow it down to say, all right, this feature tells me it's not 90% of ants. Yeah, so now we just look at this section of the, the diversity. Can't be an army ant because it has this feature that army ants don't have or whatever. That being said, I don't know if there's like a master list of known insect species. I assume there is. Yeah. Well, I know there's databases like that mm-hmm. for fossil species. Yep. And I know that the modern species have that. I don't know how they're organized. I don't know if, mm-hmm. you know, you'd have to check across multiple ones if it's like, well, there's an army ant list and then there's a, you know, carpenter ant list. And then they're like, I don't know how you would find it organized or if it would be in one spot or split up. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if you have to check multiple places Mm. because sometimes that happens. Also, it is totally a thing that will happen where sometimes you don't notice that it's one of the already identified species and one of the reviewers for the paper points it out or it gets caught years later where someone goes, hey, these two ants actually are the same species that they just missed each other or they published in the same year or something. Or vice versa, where you find an ant and you go, oh, I'm, that's this thing. And then later on, someone goes, mm, no, actually, it's got a feature yes. that we just didn't think to look at because we thought we knew what it was. Turns out it's new. Yeah. If there's any entomologists out there who have more insights into this, let us know. Yeah. I don't know how what you <laughs> use to identify ants. <laughs> Next question is from Yonita, who asks, what's been a highlight moment for you this year? Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Let's see. We did a bunch of cool podcast stuff this year. Croc and Snake Month 
was awesome. That was a lot of fun. It was super cool. It was super cool to get to talk to our special guests. It was tons of fun just thinking about different ways to work in the croc and snake themes. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely one of the big ones this year. Uh, For me, getting to work full time on the podcast Mm -hmm. that happened during this year. And that was that's been huge. Yeah, Uh, it's been a a big experience and a a huge learning curve, but also opportunity. Yeah. We also went back to Dragon Con this year, which was tons of fun. We did an awesome spooky this year. There was a lot of good stuff this year. Next up, Uju asks, what is your favorite museum and what is your favorite interactive museum? Uh, my, my personal favorite from nostalgic reasons is the Fernbank Museum in Atlanta. And for the same reason, my favorite is the American Museum in New York. <laughs> yep, it's the ones we grew up with. Interactive, though, uh, when we went to Fernbank this last time, we got to play with their wax volcano maker. Yeah. Which is one of the coolest interactive things at a museum I've ever seen. It was super cool. There was a whole <laughs> bunch of cool stuff in that room. Yep. So yeah, Fernbank is certainly top of my memory. Yes. For interactives. Yeah. That it, it, it and it's always had a section like that, but they've updated it in recent years uh so that it is much more uh, uh modern and in in shape you know things were getting worn down for the decades that i'd been going there yeah so everybody go to the fern bank and the american museum and also the gray fossil site museum because that's a cool place too (laughs) kylie asks crab bodies have evolved several times and that evolutionary trend gets its own name and has a common descent episode about it why doesn't the process of evolving snake bodies get a cool name and why isn't there a podcast episode about it heck this could be your chance to name an evolutionary trend. This is a great point. <laughs> Snake bodies have evolved a bunch of times mm-hmm. among lizards and among other organisms. I, I, when you, when it's written about in scientific papers, it's often just called elongation and limblessness. Like it's just the lengthening of the body and the loss of limbs will be paired. But there is, as far as I know, I've never heard a, a name given to the process of becoming a long limbless organism Mm -hmm. like we see in snakes and limbless lizards and Sicilians and things like that. So maybe there should be a name for that. Serpentification. Serpentization. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Someday we will, we will investigate. Absolutely. Philip asks, how has studying natural history changed the way you think about life, the natural world, how we as people relate to the natural world and what that means for us. Oh, uh, basically on all levels, Uh, like because studying biology and, and science and then paleontology has absolutely affected the way I process basically any information I get. I will, it goes through a biology filter in my brain Mm -hmm. and, you know, not all things are, one-to-one with biology, you know, like social stuff, you know, societal things are very much non-biology. Those are things that we've developed as a community. But a lot of things about like the human biology, if you look back and go, well, if you think about the way we would have been living before we had stores, (laughs) yeah, it makes sense that we struggle with like our bodies wanting more salt than is really healthy for us and stuff like that. So absolutely, it, it affects the way I think about pretty much anything. I think that for me, it gives me, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, just a big view, Mm -hmm. the big long term view, both in the very poetic sense of everything as it is now is the latest chapter in a very big, long story. And so thinking about things in the world and how they're how they're connected and how they're related through time 
but also thinking about all the various big systems and interconnected systems in the world and how we fall into those systems and how we're different or the same from various other aspects of the natural world, our impact on the natural world. It gives you a very, this very zoomed out big picture view of where we fit into things. No, I'd, I'd agree with that. I feel that most with when it comes to things we've gotten used to as part of human society, but that were completely manufactured by us humans. It, it has been a thing that helps me remind myself of like, yeah, but we made that up. Like, oh yeah, the days of the week or the hours in the day are things we made up to make sense of things. That's not actually how the rest of the world functions on. Every now and then I'll be like driving through a town or whatever, and I'll look around at all the streets and buildings and cars and everything and just have this brief existential moment where I go, this is not what the earth looks like. Nope. This we, is... Everything I can see right now was made by people. It's hard not to be a little bit like, this is fake. This is yeah, all this is... a facade. We put all this here and it's very weird. Mm -hmm. So a lot. Yes. A bunch. <laughs> Next up, Super Smedley asks, if you could pick one book to recommend on any of the subjects you cover in the podcast, what would it be? That is a good question. Mm -hmm. um, I did recently plug Riley Black's new book, Last Days of the Dinosaurs, which is about the KPG extinction. And it it's actually really great for getting a slightly updated and also slightly alternative perspective on the end Cretaceous extinction compared with what we talked about. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Riley goes into more details in some areas and presents slightly different visions of how things would have reacted during the extinction than what we discussed on the podcast. So that one is the first one that comes to mind uh, for me. That's a very uh, fun read. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Also, uh, for whatever reason, the very first book that popped into my head was Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, for vampires from Spooky. Yes, please. So read that too. Esme asks, what do you think is the biggest gap in the fossil record and what would you like to see more fossils of? I'd like to see more with diseases to assess pathologies better. That is an excellent question. And I don't have any specific fossil gaps that come to my mind. I'm just not quite familiar enough with any single fossil lineage record to pull one the first thought i have though is early flyers uh yeah. for like bats the pterosaurs. pterosaurs insects uh of getting some of those fossils of what what did you look like before you were flapping yeah i my first thought was soft tissue stuff it's mm -hmm. so like give me more internal organs and more early reproductive systems and circulatory systems which is probably a bigger ask than what you just said yeah, yep yep <laughs> i was i was narrowing it down a <laughs> you were bit. trying to be realistic that that would be extremely useful <laughs> soft tissues yes please science skink asks if you could make a documentary on a specific animal extinct or extant what would you pick Ooh. I know my answer. I mean, are we allowed to just say snakes and crocs? Because, <laughs> yeah, I'll just pick a cool snake, do a whole documentary about it. A dream documentary of going through all 26 species of croc. Oh, that would make a great one season of a show. Right. And 26 episodes. Yep. And chunk, 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 chunk. And sh to show the diversity and, and go over different aspects that they share, but using different crocs each time. Yeah. Like, all right, we're going to do nesting, but we're doing the black caiman for nesting. Yeah. So on and so forth. That would be very cool. Yeah. All right. My version will be 3,000 episodes <laughs> and better. <laughs> Renee asks, 
If you could request that the Earth cough up a particular fossil or other finding, what would it be? So if we could submit a request to the Earth. Yes. Please deliver this. What would we want to see? Ooh. My brain always wars in these questions between the fun answer and the most useful, like, for science. Right. Like, the, the most beneficial answer. Hmm. I think if only just to settle the the chaos in the regular science news a fully articulated and complete spinosaurus aegypticus i i had the i had but the two i had spinosaurus and a fully like integumented tyrannosaurus rex yep yep. those were i had those two thoughts right away can we just get one that is wholly complete and shows us what the skin and everything looked like and just settle the discussion and now we're done (laughs) and that's it Dear Earth, you have no idea what it's like up here. Please send me a complete Spinosaurus. Yeah. <laughs> but if we're being less sort of media and selfish, if I want to like a nice complete skeleton of this one thing, I'd, I'd have to go and find like some one of those weird like Charoviptorix mm-hmm. or those weird animals that we have one of and might never find another one ever again. But they were doing something super weird. Yeah. Probably one of those or something with no fossil record. Yeah. Or or uh, some like confirmation of sexual dimorphism. Like. Oh, yeah. Like t- two dinosaurs mid mating and yep. definite sexual dimorphism <laughs> in the process. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have two similar questions from Emily and Gazeboist. Emily asks, can you speculatively evolve a hexapodal or octopodal tetrapod? And Gazeboist says, how hard would it be for evolution to produce six-limbed chordates? Uh, a classic question of speculative evolution. How can you get a additional limb? Yeah, more than four limbs for, for us a... land bony animals. Yeah. I, I, Whenever I think about this, I often wonder if it would have to start out as a different structure. Yep. That it would start as like a rib mm-hmm. or something that's... Because this is how we... Uh, think that it happened for insects with their wings. Yes. That the wings developed from some other structure, like a gill or a sensory structure or something was already sticking off the body and gradually exapted various uses till it became functional as effectively a limb. Yes. And there are ways that you can get multiple limbs and digits and stuff in vertebrates. You know, there, there's uh, those calves uh, baby cows with the legs coming off their shoulder blades right and there are famous examples of frogs Mm -hmm. where they'll have an extra limb that grows so like you can duplicate limbs but the issue is that those are almost always completely non-functional and detrimental and detrimental so you would need a version of that that had a benefit enough for that that individual to survive and then do better So evolution would continue to select for that limb to become more and more functional. You'd also need that mutation to be present in the gametes of that organ and not just something that happened to the limb region when it was developing. Yes, exactly. So that feels like it'd be a harder one to stick, to stick around. So I agree with the uh, extra structure. Uh, Ribs would be cool. Osteoderms. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had the thought when we were talking about uh, stegosaurs and how those are osteoderms that are just incredibly structural. Yeah. So, like, I don't see like I don't see why it would be that difficult to have an osteoderm that 
eventually gets a jointed base or something. Yeah. With muscles attached. And then duplicating bones and stuff is, that's super easy evolutionarily. Now you could get extra bones added to that and have a limb of yeah. sorts. It would look completely different than your other legs and arms. Yes, it'd be weird. My, if I were actually going to do this in some sort of speculative project, I, I would be very tempted to just start over. Yeah. And just, all right, back to fish. Yes. They had an extra set of fins that developed and they were kind of early proto limbs like in fish. And then they just became a third pair of limbs. Yeah. What if uh, a fish lineage and the anal fin split? Right. And or so or they... uh, one of the examples that one of the question askers gave was claspers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like what if the claspers became developed as another set of limbs? So, yeah, there's a lot of ways you could go with it. Uh, none of them apparently very feasible. Yeah. And not, not it'd be very hard to start from right now. Yes. That's difficult. <laughs> Next up, we've got another pair of questions. Anna asked, is it correct to say that a species went extinct if they have evolved into a new species? And Greg similarly asks, is it possible to determine at what point something goes extinct rather than evolving into something else? That's a good question. Yeah, so not that they, the lineage ended completely, but that a species changed enough that it became something we would call another species. Yes, it, the shape and form that we would recognize as the old species is now gone. Right. Is that other, is that, is it extinct now? Does well, that count? It's kind of like when things will hybridize themselves into extinction. We're like mm -hmm. two species hybridize, but one is overbreeding the other and basically absorbs the other by breeding more often and successfully, or their genes are just more dominant. The genes of that other species didn't disappear but yeah, they've just merged into that, this lineage that color that shaped species no longer is visible because the other one outbred them that is a form of extinction even though they merged they didn't die off right in the case of so we have there are terms for this there uh, there's the term anagenesis which refers to a direct lineage where one species gradually evolves into another species. There's no branching. There's no diverging. It just gradually changes. And whether it counts as extinct or where we draw the line between one or the other brings us all the way back to the species concept yes. and what we call a species versus another species. So I think the answer is that there isn't a line and we just kind of pick. Yeah. Like, like technically, no, there wasn't an extinction. Mm-hmm. We've just changed our name for the thing, perhaps because it is now living and behaving and, and f developing in a completely different way. That is unrecognizable from what it was. But no, it, it kind of didn't go extinct. Uh, sometimes you'll see uh, paleontologists in cases like this will, will de declare uh, what are called chrono species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you have a lineage like this where things are just gradually changing over time. And then they'll just say, all right, from this time to this time, it was this species. From this time to this time, it was that species. And it's just sort of an arbitrary way of splitting up that lineage through time. Yep. Well, it's it's, it's almost the paradoxical situation of that old species didn't go extinct, but it is extinct now. Right, but it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, so it is extinct, <laughs> but it never went extinct. <laughs> yeah, so extinction comes in many forms. Yep. Great question. Very good question. Mark asks, in the second Jurassic World film, we see that there's now paleo-veterinarians that treat the animals of the park. Which real prehistoric animals do you think would be hardest to treat, and what quirks do you think would make it difficult? That is a super cool question. Absolutely. My 
first impulse is to say species that belong to ancient groups that there's nothing like them today. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, something like Anomalocaris or maybe yes. even Trilobites, where we don't have a member of that group around today. Like if we got a mammoth, we could probably do an OK job with a mammoth, relatively speaking, because yeah. we're very familiar with elephants. Probably more than half of the techniques and medicines and tools we use with elephants would apply. Yes. But if it's like a trilobite or an anomalocarid or a, a, one of those like an orthocone, <laughs> those weird things, we'd have very little basis of comparison to know how do we work with this? What bizarre thing is there going to be like what well what what is going to be this animal's what what chocolate is to dogs yes exactly for this weird animal and is it sand or something utterly bizarre mm-hmm. i'd agree with that and uh prey animals mm-hmm. would be the other thought i have because very commonly if you talk to vets and and people who work at zoos and aquariums that take care of the animals they'll tell you that the prey species are harder to detect problems in because they hide stress because mm-hmm. that is a signal to predators that they are a good target. So yeah. when they're sick, they try not to act sick or show it. So they will often go hide or just not show any of the discomfort. So it's much you have to be hyper vigilant to catch their signs of illness. And if we're doing that with an animal that we've never even met a close cousin of. Mm-hmm. It might be like, I have no clue what even happy, sad, content, like what yeah. any of your moods show as because you're so bizarre. Yeah. And all of that is true uh, for the other first thought that I had, which was sauropods. Yep. Just by the sheer scale of yes. how do you care for an animal that big? And they are also prey species and they are also something bizarrely different from what we have today. We would discover all sorts of weird like diseases and disorders that certain animals get. Mm -hmm. Like sauropods might get problems with their neck or throat or or something that we don't see in any living animals. Oh, it'd be weird. Yep. Our next question comes from Michael. There's a lot of exclamation marks after Michael. Michael. Michael says, hello, Will. Hello, David. Do you guys ever greet each other in real life the same way as how you begin the podcast? <laughs> uh, not really. No, we'll make jokes. Like, yes. We'll work it into jokes all the time. That 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 really is a podcast specific thing. Yes. <laughs> I, that 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 happened here. And uh, I, I will still have times where we will be getting ready. I'm like, all right, I need to say hello. <laughs> yep. I have to remind myself. Because it's unnatural. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jovian asks, what was the first thing on land and why? Oh, uh, microbes. Yes. Because they were there. Oh, yeah. Uh, So we know animals made it onto land by the Silurian, maybe earlier. Plants made it onto land around that same time period. And I don't actually know if we have much or any direct evidence of microbes on land. Yeah. But they must have made it onto land. I can't imagine a scenario where there weren't early eukaryotes and even prokaryotes on, even if they were near bodies of water. Yeah, even if it was shoreline populations. Or up rivers and and around streams and stuff. But surely there were ancient bacteria swarming around the rocks and things. Oh, yeah. Way before plants or animals ever made it there. Yes. No, that would be my vote for sure. So, uh... What? Microbes. Why? Because microbes. Because they were first. <laughs> the next question comes from an old favorite, Slam Jambert, the Slam Jam Lugal with the Slam Jam Bugle. <laughs> 
What is the silliest modern animal, and what is the goofiest fossil animal? Fantastic question. What is the silliest modern animal? Well, I was having a conversation uh, in the, the museum the other day about animals with a high goofiness to danger ratio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we were talking about hippos and moose. Yes. <laughs> Camels. Yep. Camels are very goofy animals. Yep. Absolutely. I have to say a lot of the birds of paradise. Oh, yeah. Because they are evolutionarily very impractical. Like that that is mm-hmm. because of where they live and how secluded they are from threats. They've been able to become ridiculous, which is the point of their displays. So they are selectively <laughs> very silly. Yes. It, it it is the kind of animal you look at and you go, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and why? As far as fossil animals, the first one that comes to mind is Nigerosaurus. Mhm which is the sauropod with the big, broad lawnmower mouth. Yeah. Uh, which is a very silly-looking dinosaur. Also, there were, there was Incisivosaurus, which is the one with the big front teeth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is a goofy-looking dinosaur. Yup. Honestly, stuff like Spinosaurus, like even though they're famous, <laughs> are very, very silly-looking when you actually step back and think about it. Yeah. Also, like... A, the Tully Monster oh, yeah. and Opabinia and all those weird ones where it's like, you are not built like an animal. It's meant to be shaped. On those, You've uh, done it wrong. The, the the cephalopods with the like corkscrew and like zigzag shells. Yeah. <laughs> or the ones that are like a long straight section and then a hook at the end. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? I, what is Why? <laughs> so lots of them. Very silly. <laughs> Next up, we have Sebastian, who asks, are there any online speculative evolution projects that either of you like? Ooh, an interesting question. I don't follow a lot of speculative evolution stuff online, really. The only ones that come to mind for me is there are a number of artists that are doing really cool, their own personal speculative evolution projects. I don't have any of their names in my mind right now, Mm -hmm. uh, but a bunch of them back when I used to frequent DeviantArt would have profiles and they would have like worlds where they're like, all right, this is my, here's the description of the world. I'm evolving an alien yeah. uh, ecosystem for. And then they would just go through and be like, all right, here's this thing. It swims. It's kind of penguin-esque, but, and they would have descriptions. And there's a number of those. So if you look up speculative evolution on I'm, I'm any of the art sites. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you will be able to find a bunch of them, but I know DeviantArt has a, a number. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if uh, Along those lines, does Avatar count? Yeah, kind of. That's topical. <laughs> Our next question is from Jonathan, who asks, I currently follow Live Science, Fizz.org, SciNews, and Science Alert on Facebook to get paleontology and nature news. Are there any other Facebook pages you'd recommend for related news? Ooh, good question. Those are definitely good ones. Those are good ones. There is Nature. Mm-hmm. There's Science Magazine. There's Smithsonian Magazine, National yes. Geographic. Uh, there are paleontology Facebook groups. So, like, there's there are dinosaur-themed Facebook groups. There's a paleontology education group, but I don't know if they post a lot of news. Uh, I get a ton of my paleontology news in addition to following the actual news sites from Tom Holtz. Yeah. Uh, we're friends on Facebook and he posts news all the time. Yeah. So if you're friends with Tom Holtz, uh, he's a great. Well, he also he'll post on Twitter mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. now on Mastodon uh, and he posts on Facebook. So follow Tom Holtz. Yes. <laughs> he's a great resource for paleontology news. Also, you mentioned Smithsonian Mag- uh, museums like a lot yeah. of the 
the good natural history museums, they will have sites and they will often post about here's a recent thing. Yeah, especially from their own researchers. Yes. Emilio asks, I've noticed that I have enjoyed more recent episodes more than some of the earlier ones. I don't mean to say that they were bad. I just noticed that the quality has greatly improved. My question is, what have you two noticed to be the biggest improvements from the earlier years? That's a very sweet sentiment. Yeah, and very, uh, that's a good question. Yeah, we, we agree. Yes, 100%. I don't like listening to the early episodes of the podcast. I haven't. <laughs> I ha Every now and then I'll go back and I'll listen to some and like, we are just, we're, we're much s smoother and more intentional about the way we talk. Yeah, we were much less confident back then. We've, we're better at just the sort of accessibility things of not talking over each other as much not making as many background noises, mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, just being mindful of our sentences when we, you know, mess up mm -hmm. and want to re-say something of pausing and not just staying the thing we want to yeah. say. We are much more editing-minded yeah. when we speak. <laughs> we are ready for the edit yes. to have to happen. Because there's nothing wrong with when you stumble over your words, but it can be distracting and sometimes make it hard to hear what you were trying to say, especially yes. in audio. Yes. And if I can't easily find a spot to cut the two, it's going to sound weird when I edit it. Yeah. Also, this is one on the back end that in theory, none of you listeners will have noticed, but we're way better at planning mm -hmm. and scheduling and organizing our, our responsibilities these days. Like our recording schedule and our editing schedule and all that is vastly improved yes. from when we started. We've also gotten more comfortable with how to organize an episode and the notes for an episode. Yep. You know, not that we there aren't topics we won't struggle with, but in general, there is definitely more of a flow to how we should put the information together, which in early episodes, it was very easy to get overwhelmed mm -hmm. and bite off more than we meant to. And didn't realize it until midway through recording it. I really shouldn't have put this section in here or yeah. something like that. And then that actually brings up another one. I think that we are also much better at being kind to ourselves about it. <laughs> like we are less strict on ourselves about it. Like I used to get upset yeah. after listening to... Almost every episode of the podcast, because mm -hmm. there'd be something, even if it was a little tiny thing, there'd be something that I'd go, mm, that shouldn't have been in there like that. I should have done this it's, instead or whatever. Or that's that, not the way I want it to be. That background noise snuck its way through the editing process or something. These days, I know I am and you and I have talked about this are much better at when something isn't perfect to just go. All right. Well, the next time, I guess. Yep. Yeah, which is a dramatic improvement. Uh, that is very helpful. Brings the stress down, and stress only makes us worse at everything we were just mentioning. Yes. <laughs> so the less stress, <laughs> the better we're going to be at those things. Our next question is from Habib, who asks, Can you convince me not to have a career as a researcher in paleontology? What are the difficulties I should be aware of? That's that's fun. Um, we could. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so be, being a paleontologist is tons of fun and there's tons of great opportunities. And it is a very fascinating and interesting field to be a part of. And if any of you out there want to do it, we encourage you to go after it. Yes. Uh, so I, I, I my stance is I will not try to convince you to not be a paleontologist. <laughs> 
But we can absolutely be honest about some of the difficulties in being a paleontologist. Yeah, well, we would get the question all the time, and I'm sure you still do at times, but when I was at the museum, I know I would get approached by parents. Mm-hmm. Especially if a kid, w- if they went on the, one of the tours and they had a kid who was very excited about dinosaurs, they were in that quote unquote phase. And the parents would come up to me sometimes and be like, they really want to be a paleontologist. Should we be discouraging that? Right. Is like, this a bad idea? Like, or how can we find another outlet or something? You know, they're worried that mm-hmm. they seem to have not grown out of this phase that we thought they would. And now we're worried that they're pursuing a career that we have been brought to the idea that is a, a dead end. Right. Pursuit. That, that doesn't exist. That that's a thing that you're interested in as kids. And then you leave that behind. And I would always tell them, no, absolutely. You can make a living like. I am a paleontologist. I'm mm-hmm. making a living. I'm moved out and doing all right. Like I, I, I made it here. And then I would almost always follow it up with, you're not going to get rich. Nope. <laughs> and so that would be the first note. It is not the career you go into if you like money. No. It's also a very competitive field. Extremely. Uh, especially if you have a sp- particular idea of what kind of paleontology job you want to have. You're fighting uh, against people who have worked their way into tenure. <laughs> right. And and I, I, that really brings me to if I were going to say what is the biggest problem with trying to go into paleontology, especially since this, the question specified research mm-hmm. paleontology, is that you're going into academia. And academia is a mess. And academia has a lot of problems that are not specific to paleontology just across the board. Yep. It can be very competitive in ways that are very difficult. Uh, the tenure system can be uh, challenging, to put it kindly. <laughs> yeah. from, from On a scale from <laughs> challenging to corrupt. <laughs> right, yes. Yes. Uh, academia and science and research science also tend to be rife with obstacles that are different for different people. Mm-hmm. So depending on your background, getting into paleontology might be difficult for you specifically if you are from a certain place or if you are a certain race or gender or if you have a certain uh, social background or something, paleontology is absolutely easier for certain people to get into than others. There's a lot of old school institutionalized biases yes. that are still there from the old days of when it got started. And paleontology and particularly academic paleontology is also unfortunately populated in part by a bunch of folks who believe in that system yep and who perpetuate that system and uh, who hold a lot of the power and who hold a lot of the power so there are a lot of cases in universities or in museums or whatever where there are problematic people that the institution has trouble getting rid of or has no intention yeah of getting rid of and all of this can create difficulties mm-hmm. they are the kinds of things that people should be aware of Like I said, we don't want to discourage you from trying to pursue paleontology. Tons of people do it. Mm -hmm. They do it successfully. People from all backgrounds manage to do it successfully. It's not always easy for a variety of reasons. Absolutely. There's also things like university politics that you're going to have to deal with if you are a researcher at a university. Mm Mm-hmm. Publishing papers is a Oh, yeah. Publishing is is a real pain in the butt. Yep. Publishers are so all over the place and have archaic and dumb and bad rules on the way to handle how science is put supposed to be being presented to the public. 
Yeah. So I guess my one of my big bits of advice for people who are trying to go into paleontology is be ready to end up in a different place than you expected to end yes. up. For example, the two of us started on the research path yep. and left. Not necessarily because we had some sort of horrible experience or anything. We found an interest yeah. and we found tolerance for a portion of it that was different from being strict research scientists. Yeah, we just realized it wasn't for us. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it it can be super awesome, but there's a there's a bunch of mess because it's because it's an institution. Yeah, every institution that humans have made has a bunch of mess to it. Yeah, and academia and paleontology is no different. So best of luck, Habib, on your career as a paleontologist. <laughs> Next is Ragnar, who asks, what are your thoughts on how the world or humans will be in another five million years of evolution? Oh, these are fun. Mm -hmm. uh, how will the world be in another five million years of evolution? Well, it's, I, I hate to just fall back on the go-to dystopian answer. Yeah. But given the trajectory of how humans treat the planet now, not great. There's going to be a lot of shuffling around of yep. ecosystems and environments. and I'd say one thing that you could almost certainly predict is it's going to be much more homogeneous. Yes. The, the, the kind of species that live around the world. Well, I think that it's really interesting because we've talked about how sometimes you'll have these projects that are like, what will the world look like in X million years? And I remember the future is wild, mm -hmm. the documentary. Their whole stance was, let's see what the world evolves into in millions of years. Uh, humans left, by the way. Yes. Humans got on a spaceship and they all left. So we're ignoring humans. Even if you ignore, even if, yeah, humans disappear next year and we fast forward five million years, the planet has to form around the effects mm -hmm. that humans have. Like if humans disappear now, the lingering impacts of what humans have done to the natural world will probably never go away. No. Like, there will now be lineages of plants and animals in parts of the world they otherwise would not have been in. Mm -hmm. There are entire biomes and ecosystems that either will or won't exist because we invented or destroyed them, mm -hmm. whether we meant to or not. Our impact on the planet will persist, will, will, much like at the after a mass extinction, what is built ecosystem wise after a mass extinction has to work with what was left yep. after the extinction. What comes in the future has to work with what is the state of the world after human impact on it. Absolutely. And if we don't ignore humans, it's much harder to say because we have so far removed ourselves from the typical natural selection process by the way we now have, the way we now reproduce. We don't reproduce just anytime we can. We are typically very selective in we have a certain number of kids and then that we're done. Even though we could probably have many more, we have hospitals that lengthen our lives and adjust who would be taken out of the gene pool or stays in the gene pool. So it's harder to say from that perspective, probably not a ton, but I still stand by the homogeneous, the more homogeneous. We would probably see as we become more global and interconnected across the continents of the world that people and cultures would start to mix and share and become more of a global community and, and culture, I would assume, unless something happens that re-divides us again. Right. And that the really the real issue with predicting the future of human stuff is that cultural change 
can be very rapid and dramatic yes. in ways that evolutionary change isn't. So optimistically, uh, we will be better at everything mm-hmm. and we will create a peaceful, harmonic world where we can exist uh, in a natural community with nature and with each other. And we will have responsibly moved across the solar system mm-hmm. in a way that we don't destroy other planets. Um, and that uh, maybe it'll be that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> EM asks, regarding sauropods, what would be the physical limits on where they could actually walk? What kind of ground pressure did they have compared to, say, elephants? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, more. Yes. More ground pressure. Yep. And I, I think the, the limiting factor to me being able to jump in and answer that is I don't know how much trouble elephants have. I know that elephants have trouble on certain surfaces because we've talked about this. That it is, I think it's a thing that elephants have a hard time walking on like asphalt or mm-hmm. concrete. Like This is something that comes up in zoos, I've heard, that th- they're much better at walking on natural surfaces. Yes. Yeah than on hard surfaces, which is also true of the way that we humans walk. Oh, like yeah. our, our feet get messed up because of the way we walk on human surfaces. Well, that's why if you took a walk in a field for the same amount of time that you were walking on a sidewalk, your feet are probably getting more tired after the sidewalk because the sidewalk does not yield. Hmm. The, the concrete doesn't yield it all to the forces we're imparting upon it. It just gives them all back basically 100%, which is why it hurts your feet. Yeah. I, I figure, I mean, it's probably true that sauropods would have trouble walking on unstable surfaces. Mm-hmm. Like, would they be more in danger of sinking into the mud or of shifting, you know, unconsolidated sediment underneath them? I assume they would not do very well with slopes. Yeah, probably or like not. uneven, like uneven sloped surfaces. Like, I don't think they would have climbed very well at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. I don't yeah. know a ton about. I also don't know what, because I, I know... Uh, from talking to elephant experts, that it is common for elephants to develop foot problems. And because there's tons of weight on their feet, so they're susceptible to it. And if an elephant hurts a foot, that can lead to problems all throughout the body as they're carrying their weight differently or they'll develop back issues. I would assume that would be even more extreme for sauropods. Mm -hmm. Like if a sauropod, is it, would it be way easier for a sauropod to hurt its foot like, if it steps on a rock, is that going to be worse because there's 20 tons pushing your foot into that rock? Mm-hmm. And if a sauropod hurts their foot, is that going to be crippling for the sauropod just because of how much weight they have to deal with? And maybe. Yeah. This would be one of those things that the paleo veterinarians would have to worry about. Exactly. Yeah. It's what's well, like all of the, you know, hoof. Uh, treatment videos that you can find all over YouTube mm-hmm. from the issues that cows can develop from just being on their feet all day. Well, next up we have I Am Simon. They say, you meet a person with no curiosity about the world they live in. How do you explain to them why paleontology is a good investment? How would you make it relatable? What is in it for them? And why should their tax dollars support a museum? This is a very relatable question. Mm-hmm. Um, my One of my favorite go-to phrases for what makes paleontology unique and important is that paleontology is a crucial field of study, perhaps the only field of study, where we are able to answer questions about how environments change in the long term. 
Mm-hmm. In the modern day, if you want to see what happens to a forest, all right, we burn down a section of forest. How does this forest react? What does that look like in the future? What is this going to do to the diversity of the forest? We can watch a forest for a year and for 10 years and for 100 years, and we can even look for a 1,000 years and compare historical records. But if you want to know what are the truly long-term impacts of environmental change, paleontology is the one place where you get to look at that. What? How does this event affect this ecosystem 10,000 years or a million years down the line? Paleontology also provides you with tons of case studies. Yes. So when we ask those questions about how do things change, what happens when an important species goes extinct, which is something that is happening in the world all over the place right now? What happens when a forest disappears, which is something that is happening all over the world right now, or a reef disappears? What happens if the climate shifts dramatically and an environment becomes significantly warmer or drier or wetter than it was before? We don't have a way of testing that and accounting for all the variables. We can't create. We can create simulations, but they only go so far. With paleontology, we can look at those examples in the past. It's our only way to look back. The reason we know that modern day climate change is concerning is because we're comparing it to climate change in the past. The reason we have predictions about how this might affect our world moving forward is because we have examples of this in the past. So if if you are concerned at all about understanding the future of the natural world around us, paleontology is how we come to understand the future by exploring the past. Absolutely. There also is the defense of enrichment that... Even if it's not enriching to you, it's enriching to other people. I don't visit art museums often because <laughs> I don't have a background in art and I don't have a following. Like, that's not where my interests lie. But I still am glad they're there for those people who do want to go to the art museum. And so that from that perspective, this is for the community at large. It is an enriching thing for many, many, many people. Yeah. This is a question we get a lot. I get this at the museum all the time. If you're a scientist, you have to answer these kinds of questions. And I often will say what I said, and I'll say what you said. And also, I like to add in the little bit that it's also just super cool and interesting. And science for science's sake is, I understand, not the only incentive we can have Mm -hmm. because money and all that. But it's not a bad bonus. It is valid. It it is a valid thing that this is cool. It's fascinating. It's interesting. We're expanding our knowledge and it gets people interested Mm -hmm. in learning more. Matt asks, how readily available is information on excavated fossils? Are there electronic databases of fossils and collections? What percentage of discoveries do they record and how much information do they contain about each fossil? A very good question with many varying answers. Yes. Yes, there are sometimes the electronic databases Depending on the situation, it might be accessible. It might just be within the museum and those who are working on stuff. And that most museums with a fossil collection, well, basically all museums with a fossil collection will have some sort of collections database. Sometimes they are electronic. Sometimes they are made available online or they Mm -hmm. sync up with other museum collections. There's also going to be somewhere you're still have old databases that are not electronic. Yes. That the previous stuff found over the the decades, which are just written, 
Yeah, and a lot of those have been digitized or mm-hmm. are in the process of being digitized, but not all of them. As far as what information is is recorded, uh, basically, yes, every discovery is going to get recorded if it was if it was done properly. If it was done dug up by professional paleontologists, especially if they were working for a museum, right. it will be recorded and documented. Professional uh, and and professional acting. Yes, yes. <laughs> paleontologists. It will be recorded somewhere. Responsible people. <laughs> How much information depends on the procedures of that site and that those paleontologists. Mm-hmm. Some, and when it was yep. and what information was thought to be important at that place in time. Absolutely. It, it just kind of depends. There are some places like at the Gray Fossil site, we document a ton mm-hmm. of info compared to a lot of others. But we also have the site all year round and we can be nitpicky about the way we record every single thing if we want other people only have a month at the site, so they may not be able to document everything in the field as as meticulously. Meticulously, so that that information might have to come later when the research is happening. Right. There are some uh, places online, more and more of them, that collate databases. So there are things like the Paleobiology Database, which attempts to be the one-stop shop for all data about different species, different fossil species that have been found and where. There are mapping databases like the Neotoma database. So there is more and more go-to sources online for vast amounts of collections data. Uh, But they're not complete. And there's many times when something might be recorded and in the museum's database, but won't be released because it is in the process of being identified and researched. Right. And that could take years where Mm -hmm. we go, we have a fossil, but we don't know what it is. So we're not going to say it. We're not going to announce it on the news of we've got a bone of something and we're figuring it out. Like they will just process it that way. It'll be released when the publication comes out. Exactly. So there's definitely things that have been recorded that are not released yet because they're in process. Yeah. Or sometimes that institution just doesn't have the materials to make it publicly accessible yet. Mm-hmm. Like Gray is currently working on projects to make the collections data publicly accessible. Yes, there's not just a, a single system on how to do that. Yeah. Alex asks, what are your guys' favorite novels, paleo-related or otherwise? Hmm. When I was a kid, when I was yeah, like high school in the college age... Uh, I know for a while I would cite my favorite novel as being Sphere mm. by Michael Crichton. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. think it'd be my favorite now, but at a, at a time it was my uh, the one I would say is my favorite. That and the Bartimaeus trilogy by <laughs> uh, Jonathan Stroud, which I read as a kid. I, don't, I remember basically nothing about it, but I used to, to say it was great all you the time. You remember that you liked it. I remember that I liked it. Someday I'll read it again. Uh, I don't read a ton of novels. Uh, uh, it has to be a very particular kind of chapter book to keep me engaged. Mm-hmm. So really sci-fi is typically the only thing. So I've read a number of Star Wars chapter sure. books and, and Warhammer and stuff like that. Uh, one that I read, I came across when I was younger, but didn't read till I was older because it ended up being much more violent and adult aimed than I was prepared for was the March Up Country series. And it, the author's something Weber, if I remember right. But it's March Up Country and March to the Sea and March to the Stars. Mm. Uh, it's a series of books about a group stranded on an alien planet that then have to march their way across this yet-to-be-technologically-developed uh, planet to get to the one starport 
And so they're trekking across jungle and meeting the local uh, inhabitants and having to fight their way across a very wild planet, which was awesome. It was super cool. Uh, cool. And then other than that, you mentioned earlier Bram Stoker's Dracula. I, I was going to say, Cindy, we mentioned Dracula, and Dracula's great. I love Dracula so much. The next question is from Katie. This is a question for Will. Uh, Katie didn't say it's for Will, but it is. Katie says, my son got a Jurassic Park toy that we thought was Dinosuchus, but we just found out it's Sarcosuchus. Now my four-year-old is having an existential crisis. Do you know where I can get a Dinosuchus toy? Or do you have any reasons why Sarcosuchus is better that I can console him with? Ooh, all right, absolutely. So... See, I told you. (laughs) uh, There are definitely Dinosuchus figures out there. Uh, the trouble you run into a lot of times, though, is that Dinosuchus, other than some very specific things, at a glance just looks like a pretty normal crocodile. Sarcosuchus has a very distinct face, so you can make a toy out of Sarcosuchus and it will be distinctly Sarcosuchus. If you make a toy out of a Dinosuchus, you, most people aren't going to be able to tell that it's anything other than that until you read the name of the box. But there are figures, like, and I know if I've seen them on Amazon, I don't know that they're going to be... Jurassic Park toy, like, posable, playable, but there's definitely, like, Schleck and Popo have uh, uh, figures. Sarcosuchus is super cool uh, because it was very likely living at least somewhat like Gharials in that it has a very long, thin snout and a very bulbous nose at the tip. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have thought that it might be like the Gharial, which is the only croc like itself around today. Like, there's other skinny-snouted crocs, but none of them are to the degree or as weird as the gharial is. So Sarcosuchus is a very unique, giant croc. Yeah. There's not really any 40-foot crocs shaped quite like Sarcosuchus is. And so it's very cool because it's special compared to a lot of the other big ones. Yeah, for a group of animals that is so often teased for all looking the same. Mm Mm-hmm. Sarcosuchus and the gharial-shaped crocs are very different and unusual and unique. So, if that helps. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we have Abel, who asks, besides the Gray Fossil Site, what is your favorite natural history museum and why? Oh, hey, we should have combined this with those other questions that we answered before. Yep. Uh, That's my fault for organizing (laughs) the list. Hey, uh, American Museum of Natural History up in New York and also the Fern Bank. (laughs) I also really like the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. I'm a big, I haven't been there in a long time, but I've always been a big uh, fan of the Denver Museum. I've heard very good things about that. I also went to the uh, Science Museum in Houston, Texas when I was a kid, which was partial natural history and other stuff, but it was very cool. Lots of really cool displays and, and moving exhibits, which I really liked. Yeah. Our next question is from Hunter, who asks, if cats and dogs accidentally domesticated themselves by hanging around humans, is it possible we are on the way to domesticating raccoons and deer since they live so closely to us and go through our trash and eat our gardens? Uh, I mean, possibly. Yeah, maybe. Absolutely. If we jump forward another few thousand years, absolutely we could have domestic uh, uh, deer and raccoons just because of that close proximity. And especially if we someday go, hey, you know what? Raccoons are really you know, fun to have around. Yeah, let's keep those around. Or, you know, just the fact that they're cute, or if we find out that they're good at something, you know, that Mm -hmm. they're really good at a certain thing. Picking locks. Yeah, well, it's like, uh, uh, you know, people who have assistance animals, we may be like, actually, a raccoon's a really good assistance animal for some reason. I'm not (laughs) suggesting you try that. No, don't do that. That's a wild animal. (laughs) 
but that we might find that they actually are good at helping people with certain tasks, mm-hmm. like a seeing eye dog or a, a you know, a, a health assistance pet. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Could be. Next question from Susanna, who asks, is it theoretically possible to re-evolve a lost feature? And if so, has it ever happened? Interesting. Um, It does not seem to be possible in the sense of like a big whole thing that used to be there. Like mm-hmm. re-evolving limbs, for example, isn't something that we've seen that has definitively happened mm-hmm. and might not be possible because that's a complex developmental thing. Well, and if you if it was going to happen, it would probably have to happen on the same time scale that the first limbs. Sure. Have it, that, that <laughs> you would have to go through a process of very slowly developing a new body structure. And arguably that wouldn't be re-evolving limbs. Yep. That would be evolving something new. New types of limbs. For example, there are birds, there are lineages of birds that have evolved tooth-like structures. Mm-hmm. So modern birds, Neornithes, have lost their teeth, but certain lineages have evolved protrusions on the jaw that are like teeth that are kind of re-evolved. Yes. You evolved a new thing that is the same, doing the same job as the old thing. You, you evolved a tool that your ancestors used to have, but it's not made out of the same stuff. Right. Um, I I know that at least theoretically, uh, it should be possible that certain genes in an organism's genome and a lineage's genome might be deactivated, yes. but stick around and then be activated again. And I've heard cases of this potentially happening. There's a term atavism, mm-hmm. which refers to potentially something like this occurring. But I don't know if that is common or confirmed in any capacity or where how it plays into long-term evolutionary trends but there there is the potential for the genetic info for an ancestral trait to stick around Mm -hmm. so potentially if it were to get reactivated and then be beneficial a group could start selecting for you know like we found that the gene for teeth in birds is there Mm -hmm. but that's not how these somewhat toothed birds pseudo teeth have their teeth but the genes are there so potentially if it were to get awoken and then be helpful right and still work you might see toothed birds for this example right come back but it probably would be very different Mm -hmm. because it's the code for that has still degraded because it's not being it's not been used for millions of years and the code surrounding it has changed Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a very interesting question yeah Kylie asks, is Will still able to stay home and work on the podcast full time? Does he miss working a standard job? I do not. (laughs) The answers are yes and no. Yeah, I am still (laughs) working for the podcast full time. I don't miss working a standard job. Uh, Working full time from home and being half of one owns boss has been a huge learning experience. Mm -hmm. And that has had its difficulties at time of having to be 100% responsible for managing my own time and productivity because uh, you're a real slacker of an employee right <laughs> like <laughs> that has definitely been a struggle at times and and has been a huge transition but it has not made me miss having to clock in yeah even a little bit <laughs> like not not even slightly there are things i like i miss jobs i've had i would love to like volunteer in an aquarium or a zoo 
because I, I miss getting to do the stuff I did at that job, but I'd still prefer to do it for free in my own time than to have to do it instead of <laughs> working for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Buffalo MJ asks, not sure if you're Final Fantasy fans, but could there be a way to have chocobos in real life or would the bird frame be too light to support writers? Oh, interesting. Um, I don't think that it is impossible no. for a bird frame to support a rider. Even if modern bird frames, you know, my, like, I don't know how easy it is to ride an ostrich. Uh, but I could certainly see speculatively developing a sturdier ostrich. Absolutely. That you could then plop a person on top of. Yeah, because I know that there are rodeos where people ride ostriches. I don't know that it's good for the animal, so I'm not... Right. I am not... Uh, we don't uh, condone uh, this behavior. Yeah. I'm not condemning it because I don't know. Right. <laughs> but I'm not saying anything otherwise than I know it has happened. So an ostrich can move the weight of a person. Right. And so absolutely, just a stouter, sturdier ostrich or, or cousin. Absolutely. Like yeah. it, it would take some time to... Sure. To and select some selective and pressure and, and domesticate... A, a riding bird, but... But that's just a theropod dinosaur. Yeah. You could do it. For sure. Also, we're not really Final Fantasy fans. <laughs> no, not... I'm not... We don't played... dislike it. Yeah. I've played a little bit. That's fine. Watch Advent Children. Uh, Milu asks, How are you dealing with the increases in your community? Are there any downsides to having your current number of followers? How does it feel being on your side of this parasocial relationship we share? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent question. Uh, it's been amazing. Yeah, it's, it's been so cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't think of any, like, downsides. Not really. Like, we haven't... I, I kind of expect uh, either, th if not yet, that eventually I have it in my head to expect that we will reach a level of notoriety that we'll start getting trolls yep. online, and which hasn't really happened. We've definitely gotten, you know more rude or or i hesitate to even say aggressive more internet-y comments yeah we've gotten messages before and comments and and things that were less friendly or just a bit more awkward uh, so we've definitely gotten interactions like that that were not pleasant sure uh, but I, they never ping my they haven't pinged my radar in the past any like i I guess I, that's partially lying. I still remember a bunch right. of them. So, but it hasn't become a thing as our followers have increased. It's Even if I remember them, it hasn't colored my <laughs> experience of having, having right. fans. I think the current size of the community has allowed us to do things. Like our Discord, mm -hmm. we can do something like Discord because we have uh, an expansive community that will fill that space. Yeah. So I, I it's super awesome. It's definitely... We have conversations about the parasocial, the parasocial aspect of it from time to time of like sure, sure. how much is too friendly for a person we don't actually know and doesn't actually know us. Right. And just keeping that in mind. Yeah. Are we like, being is is this crossing some line that we <laughs> shouldn't be crossing because we've never had to ask that question in our lives before? <laughs> but typically, I don't know, it's pretty fine. It, I, 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 we don't typically run into a lot of issues. Yeah, no, it's great. Mm -hmm. Like thumbs up all around. Absolutely. Way to go, community. Yeah, thank you. Way to go, Milu. <laughs> Next is Jill, who asks if you could ask a question on the year-end questionnaire of your favorite podcast, what would it be? Clever. Yeah. Um, what's my favorite podcast? I haven't been listening to a lot of other podcasts recently. It'd be this one. 
my my favorite podcast, even though they they haven't been podcasting as much lately, but they still do make content, is the Acquisitions Incorporated, Penny Arcade, D and D. Yeah, yeah. That's that's my that's the only one that I've listened to multiple times. Like I've listened to Magnus Archives a, a couple of times, but. Mm-hmm. Penny Arcade, I, I, Acquisitions Incorporated is my favorite yeah. D&D thing. If they did an end-of-the-year Q&A, what would you ask them? I think I'd want to know, and I've heard other people, other D&D, online D&D people talk about this, but how different does the stage mm. game feel from your home game? Yeah. Like, I'm sure it's tons of fun, but is it fun in a completely different way because you're performing? Even if it's ad-lib, you're still performing on stage literally before hundreds of people yeah actually i do that does make me think so i don't listen to critical role as a podcast but i do keep up with critical mm-hmm. role and I, I i watch the the shows and i did not too long ago think of a question because i was watching some one of their like live q a's and i was like what would my question be mm-hmm. to try to find a question that maybe they haven't been asked before and the one i came up with is that fans often talk about like this player is my favorite because they do this or wow, this player is so impressive because of blah, blah, blah. I would want to ask, what do each of you find most impressive and admirable about your fellow players? Yeah. Like not from the audience perspective. What do you think is the coolest, most impressive thing about the person who sits next to you at the table? Yes. And I think that'd be a pretty cool insight to get. That would be a fun one. Good question. Very meta. Our next question is from Serpentine. Who asks, hey, how you guys been? Doing all right? Any big personal developments you want to share? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Serpentine. Hi, Serpentine. Uh, Doing all right. Yeah. Uh, Busy with the holiday stuff. Got lots going on. Yeah, we're in crunch time. Been in crunch time. Getting stuff done before the holiday sets in. And so it's. I often find when I'm asked that question that my answer that I want to give is, "I'm, I'm doing fine and I am all right. Even if some days I've been very stressed. Yes. <laughs> like, On the whole, doing okay. Yep. But there are definitely things like, and that's my brain compartmentalizes a bunch. So generally I'm doing fine. And even some of the stressful stuff is still good stuff. It's just a lot. Uh, personal, any big personal developments? The only one I have is that I have recently started trying ADHD medication. Oh, yeah. How's that go? I haven't actually uh-huh. asked. How's it going, yeah. Will? This, for the first time in over 20 years, mm-hmm. I'm trying AD. I took Ritalin back in the 90s. Yeah. I, I was on Ritalin and then Adderall mm-hmm. as a kid. Yep. And I it worked for me, but I did not like the after effects, so we stopped taking it. My mm-hmm. parents took me off, and I have not taken it since I was in elementary school, like in third grade. And I've tried again. This one is a, an antidepressant variety, so I haven't tried a stimulus one like Adderall again. Uh, so far, I haven't felt any effects, right. uh, which I was nervous to start it because I hadn't taken it in a while. And I'm like, is this going to change who I am? Is this going to make me not will? Yep. <laughs> and You're so going to start it, liking turtles. Yeah, well, it's been a weird, like, disappointment that it's not doing anything. And also like a, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> Still me. <laughs> it didn't work. Oh. <laughs> but also, hey. Hey, it didn't do it. Right. <laughs> so, so that's a journey. Yeah, still in the trial process, but I, I'm exploring that option. So we'll yeah. see how that goes. Best of luck. That go that cycles back to the managing myself as as my own employee. Yep. <laughs> that's what led us to this point. <laughs> Next question is from Ahmad, 
Who says creating an animal from just bones is a work of imagination? What animal living today would you not be able to recognize if you have only the bones? Similarly, what fossil animal are you 100% sure how it looked with flesh, skin, and hair slash feathers? Ooh, an interesting... There are a ton of animals today that their skeleton does not look the way that they look on the outside. Lots of fish. Lots of fish. Being at the museum, red panda skeletons Mm -hmm. do not look like a red panda because they're covered in fluff. Uh, Yeah, I'd I'd say a lot of your fluffy animals, birds included. Absolutely. Like an owl. That's what it's about That'll go around the internet every now and then. All the time. And I I had that uh, moment with Anna just the other day where I was like, this is what an owl's skull looks like cartoons and their face makes it look like their beak is pointed down like they have a flat face with their beak at the bottom but no they just have a bird face yeah they've just got a flat feathers super (laughs) fluffy similarly whales Mm -hmm. the skulls especially like whale skulls are very bizarre looking so yeah there's a bunch of animals that the skeleton does not really seem to represent what the outside looks like i birds i think would be probably my top vote Mm -hmm. just because plumage can be so ridiculously huge in the form, in the shape of the animal, mm-hmm. but also variable. Like, even in the same group, different species of birds can be vastly different profiles because this one has long feathers and that one has short feathers. If you looked at their skeletons, they would be almost identical because they're very closely related, but their feathers aren't. <laughs> so they yes. look like just completely different birds. I feel like there's also a... A uh, slightly cheaty answer to be given with like sharks. Yep, yep. Where there's not a whole lot of bone often <laughs> left behind. As far as fossil animals, uh, I mean the best ones are the ones that have very similar things today, mm-hmm. like crocodilians. Yes, where crocodilian skulls tend to not have very much covering them, and they the the face looks a lot like the skull. Yeah, that's basically their because fa- because the, there's nothing in between the skin and the bones. <laughs> And the body of crocodilians tends to just look like the body of a crocodilian. Yeah. So any fossil croc like Dinosuchus or Sarcosuchus, I feel like we can be pretty sure of at least the shape of that animal. Yeah, we, we have to guess at the colors, but the yeah. the shape and, and overall girth is probably going to be pretty close to what we're, we're going with. Kaysen asks, how much complex math was involved in your careers? Ooh, not oh, much. For paleontology, not much. Uh, now, for us, it's not much by choice. Yes. Because <laughs> you can do you can do hardcore statistics and all sorts of different algorithm analyses and things in paleontology if you want to. Uh, we did not. In college, though, I did pursue a lot of math courses. Uh, so I, I am very happy in, uh, uh, with math, even though I don't use it professionally almost ever. Uh, but I took tons of physics courses and astronomy courses and... Did lots of... I never did calculus. It mm-hmm. was all algebra-based. Yeah. So Funnily I, enough, I did calculus. Yep. <laughs> I didn't need it. I didn't use it for anything, but I did it. I We we had a calculus course, and I remember there was one point where it's like, I could either learn what that is, because right. I still don't actually fully have a comprehension of how calculus works, or I could take this other elective that I want to take. So I never learned calculus. Yep. <laughs> CJ would like to know, what would you say the first really scary land predator would have been after the KPG extinction. Ooh, the first really scary land predator. Well, if I'm thinking scary for us, <laughs> uh, probably wouldn't have been until, you know, the early large predatory mammals or some of those early predatory birds. Yes. But scary across the board, 
And there were still sharks and there were still like terrifying spiders. <laughs> there would still have been like venomous snakes, like animals that are very effective and intimidating predators, even if not predators of me. Yeah. There were also terrestrial crocs, not too And there far were terrestrial. After. This is true. Yep, so yep. <laughs> a number of continents had terrestrial crocs and some of them that got decent sized and could actually be pretty scary to even something our size. Yeah. Lily asks, what is your guy's favorite domesticated animal? Also, my roommates and I are planning a trip to the Gray Fossil Site. Is there anything we should definitely do while we're there? Oh. Yeah. So to answer the second one, uh, if you're coming to visit the Gray Fossil Site, feel free to let us know. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're around, uh, we'll say hi. Yes. Uh, also, while you're here, go check out the Gray Fossil Site. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is our favorite domesticated animal? Favorite domesticated animal. I mean, like cats and dogs are pretty, like, sure. have a pretty close relationship with My them. favorite domesticated animal is sitting behind me. Yes. <laughs> uh, she's the best. Mine's in Georgia. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of other things we've domesticated that I... Clydesdale horses. <laughs> I have, I think Clydesdale horses are one of the coolest looking animals on our planet. Like that's just, it, it, they look majestic and powerful and stoic. And mm -hmm. they've just got this awesome, like, like they can't have a beard beard, but they've got the just mane that's, they, it, they look so cool and they've got the furry hoofs. Clydesdales are awesome. Yeah, that's pretty good choice. Yeah. Next question is from James. If you could create one hybrid animal, like in D&D, &D, a wizard did it, <laughs> what would it be? Ooh, uh, bat snake. <laughs> snake wings. Yeah. Uh, whale snake. <laughs> I don't even know what that, just just a giant, just a sea, a sea serpent. <laughs> giant ocean going snake with well, a they, huge. They use their elastic jaw and, and stomach to filter feed. Yeah, like oh, a just the, whale. the whole way down. <laughs> all the the filtration like system. A clown balloon at that point. <laughs> I honestly, I, I, I like, I would want to go the same route with Crocs, but I, I can't think of something that will make them better. Yeah, I can't think of what I want to <laughs> add. Uh, uh, Crocs and what? What do you give to the lineage that has everything? <gasps> Crocs and wolves. Give me some social running Crocs. Ooh, yeah. I want to. Of wolf crocs. That'd be crocs, crocs, and uh, African wild dogs. Yes, there we go. Yeah. Give me hunting crocs, and and we will call it a day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dragonfly squid. <laughs> Start yelling out awesome animals and put them in. I don't oh, even man. know what that looks like. Fan artists out there uh, make some of these hybrid animals. Whenever we do our speculative channel, there's another series of. <laughs> Here's a randomized list of animals, and here's a randomized list of animals. And bump, then just bump. put them together. And now, okay, what? how would that be ecologically? Oh, man, will it blend? <laughs> <laughs> Next up, Zabby asks, Is the modern Komodo dragon a relic population of Megalania that underwent island dwarfism? Why or why not? Right. Uh, we discussed this, actually, back in our Monitors episode, episode 143. Uh, and the short answer uh, turns out to be no, probably not. Yeah, it doesn't uh, seem like the uh, evidence supports that. Separate lineage. Uh, and for more details, go check that out in a, in a Monitors episode. Indeed. Next, we have Cam Cambroda. 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 Trainer Cambroda. 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 Trainer Cambroda 
What is your favorite and least favorite new Pokemon in Scarlet and Violet? Oh, this is dangerous. Oh. This is a dangerous question. Um, I this the internet has really gone nuts for this Pokemon, but I loved it. But <laughs> even before I knew that, Tinkaton is so cool. Tinkaton is great. I really like Tinkaton. <laughs> I'm so happy with Tinkaton. It makes me very very giddy. Um, Orthworm, Orthworm I, I quite liked. Uh, I like the, the the big steel worm snake. I like that it looks like a bullet train. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. I do like that. Uh, the legends are cool. Mm-hmm. Miraidon, I really like Miraidon. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, my the top of my list is Skeleturge. Uh, sure. Get that Makes sense. Because obviously. Because of course. It's beautiful. <laughs> Skeleturge is very cool. Oh. As far as least favorite, I don't often have a least favorite. I like all Pokemon, like they're my children. But I because he has to. There was a Pokemon in the game that I did experience a reaction to, where I saw it for the first time and I went, "Oh, really?" And I don't know if you've even seen this one because you weren't there when this happened. This Which was one? one of the Paradox Pokemon. I, I, yeah. Okay. Go. It's called Sandy Shocks. Yep. And I. Mm. That's the one I was gonna say because <laughs> I did look them up, even though okay. I missed your yeah, playthrough. Yeah, yeah. I, it it came up in the game and I went, huh? Yeah. And that's about the extent of the thoughts I've had on Sandy Shucks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mine was very much along the lines of, okay, I get what you're going for. I disagree. Yeah, that's pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. I, I see where you were doing. I would have voted the uh, other way. I'm not. I'm not completely on board with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, overall, I really like the selection. Hey, of Pokemon in Gen Nine. Good group. Very happy with it. Even even with. Uh, Koridon's weird wheel butt. (laughs) (laughs) Does have a weird butt. A weird wheel wheel butt. Ben asks, if you could travel back in time to witness one specific phenomenon or event, what would it be? As an example, I would love to go back and witness a sauropod gravesite from its inception to its decomposition. That's a cool choice. That is very cool. The first thing that popped in my mind, this isn't my serious answer, but I went, oh, what movies would I want to see when they open? Like, <laughs> Alien would Alien. be super cool opening night and see every, like, I'd already know, but everyone else's reaction to the yeah. chestburster the first time ever? That's true. That would be very cool. That's not quite in the scoot. spirit of what I think you were asking. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go stand next to the first person that ever saw a whale. Yeah. And just, what did what did that person think? <laughs> 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 Comments, uh, Captain Ahab? Similar to the gravesite, which, which is a very cool answer. I'd really it'd be very cool to go back and watch certain extinct predators hunt. Yes. Like, I'd love to see Anomalocaris hunt or even, you know, Dromaeosaurs or T-Rex. Like, what did you look like on the hunt? Yeah. Mating displays would also be. Yeah. Like, like courtship displays. Uh, or interactions or behavior, whatever they did, would be very interesting. Especially for ones like sauropods again. Like, would it? Not only would we finally get the answer to how did you mate? Like, mm-hmm. how do you physically achieve? Yes. How'd you do this? Because uh, we don't know. <laughs> but also, like, did you do weird stuff? Did you, were you neck fighting? Were you doing neck dances? Yeah. Were you like using your tail in weird ways? I I have. I think I've said this on the podcast before. I would be utterly thrilled just to go back and stand next to a sauropod. Yes. Just to to stand in one place and let a, a herd of sauropods walk past me and just be utterly dwarfed. Yep. 
And what did they sound like? Yeah, just did to hear the, it breathe. Did the ground shake when they <laughs> walked? Did they were they very oddly silent? Like elephants. Like elephants. Did they make noise? Like just to just to be next to it. Oh. Also, it is very tempting to say the KPG impact. Yep. Just to just to be far enough away that there's time for me to teleport back home. Yep, and with, with <laughs> Eclipse glasses. Yes, with, I don't, well, yeah, with a, with a hazmat yeah, suit. Yeah. I, I would you like to a, be able to see. need a refrigerator to crawl into. <laughs> Our next question is from Andy the Neanderthal. What aspect of paleontology would you each choose to investigate if given a generous research grant? Your research projects end product could be an academic paper or a TV documentary film or perhaps even a podcast. Oh, that's a very articulate question for a Neanderthal. <laughs> um, oh man, that's a that's a really good. I, I, really my my go-to thing would be to do some sort of research and then documentary or something on science communication. Yes, that would be very cool. The way paleontology information is brought out to the public or the way that it is portrayed in pop culture, like silver screen science, but as a research grant and then a documentary series or something and just sort of follow the information and how it warps as it goes into different sections of society. Even if it was just focused on dinosaurs, like even if we just said, all right, here's how, here's why Iguanodon used to look like that and now looks like this. Here's what happened and why you have these images like art, mm-hmm. media, film, and go through all the things, uh, basically explain to the people watching why they have the thoughts they have. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that would be tons of fun. And it would be great to especially do some research and get some numbers, yeah. do questionnaires and, and, and surveys. And that's been done. Yeah, absolutely. That has been done academically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would not be the first. No, but to but. like bolster that and take some targeted studies. For what we'd be wanting to discuss and have it you study things for the documentary. Yes. Would be very cool. Absolutely. Yanis asks, have you ever played any paleo video games? Also, could you say Sorophagonax Maximus because it's an epic name? I Uh, can't say that name. No, no. No, That's a very difficult name to pronounce. That that is too much for me. Uh, Paleo video games. I have not played many. Uh, I had Turok for the first Xbox. And like many early Xbox games, it was not well balanced. Like Mm -hmm. I got stuck on some part because I couldn't figure out what the game wanted me to do and just I couldn't progress. So I never played that one all the way through. I think I finally found a a, a Game Shark for anyone who remembers Game Sharks. I do. Uh, I think I finally found one so I could play other levels. And I was like, I'll go to the end and fight the T-Rex and then just died. (laughs) So I played that a bit and I've played a bunch of the Jurassic Park games. Uh, yeah, park creator games that they've made over the years, and those are fun. I've played. I played a bit of Saurian, uh, and I've played a bit of some of those Jurassic Park stuff. Uh, like I had some Jurassic Park computer games back in the day, uh, and those were fun. There was one a uh, really cool one for uh, once again for Xbox that once you beat the game, it had an option where you could just make an island without a park. And the thing I loved is that they. Animals had AI. So if you made a whole bunch oh, yeah. of triceratops or something, they would naturally herd together. Cool. You didn't have to put them in a pen together. They would herd. And so you could make like natural barriers. You can make a mountain range and separate two halves of the island and stuff. And also the predators would hunt. So mm-hmm. I like to just 
I just made a, a nature reserve, and yeah. it's very cool. That's cool. Oh, also, uh, Magic School Bus in the Time of the Dinosaurs. <laughs> I used to play those Magic School Bus computer games all the time. Oh, that's there's a memory from, like, childhood rushed in when you said that. I don't remember what it was called, but it was, like, an interactive storybook game you know, where you move from scene to scene, and then you can, like, interact with things in the scene of the story. And this one was a dinosaur story, but it was, like little humanoid dinosaurs and they were going camping together and they got scared by noise at the night and everything. Huh. I don't remember the name of it because I was too little to recall the name, but I played that thing so many times. <laughs> if anyone has any clue what I'm talking about and has the name, yeah, let us know. Share it because it was adorable and you could just click on stuff and they'd move and things would happen in the scene. Cool. It was great. Billy inquires, if you wanted to play a dinosaur person in Dungeons and Dragons, what race would you use? I am torn between Aarakocra and Lizardfolk myself. Ooh, interesting question. Um, I think, I mean, Aarakocra is a dinosaur person. Yes, technically speaking. That's a bird person. Lizardfolk would probably be a better fit for if you wanted to do, you know, theropods yes. type thing. My answer is that I would come up with my own homebrew <laughs> dinosaur race and then I would get carried away with it and end up creating numerous different race options that were based on different kinds of dinosaurs. Yep. There'd be a sauropod sub race and there'd be uh, horned dinosaurs and stegosaurs and theropods. And then I would never use it. Yep. Uh, <laughs> another alternative for you to chew on is a turtle and kylosaur person. Oh, that's a cool there idea. There you go. And just add a tail weapon feature to your, your racial trait. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So chew on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, personally, if I were going therapist, I would do lizard folk. But I also love lizard folk. So any excuse I can get to play one, yeah. I will take. Yeah. So. No, makes sense. Madeline says, as a fellow Southerner and a woman, I really appreciated your acknowledgement of the Roe v. Wade decision earlier this year. Do you intend to do more activism through your platform? Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, we're glad you appreciate it. And mm -hmm. we we have... We absolutely are open to to helping with other causes in the future. Uh, we don't have anything like planned. Uh, yeah. All the times that we've we've stepped in as the podcast to try to support something, it was in response to things happening in the world at the time. Uh, so there's nothing that we currently have like targeted as that's what we're going to do next. Uh, it also does depend on where our finances are at. The time yeah. is because we like to support. Mm -hmm. We like to make donations and we like to use our platform to encourage others uh, if they want to do the same. So almost so, assuredly, yeah, probably more stuff will come up in the future. But, but no news right now as to what we're we might be doing. Yes. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer would like to know. David, what is it that makes you think? <laughs> <laughs> so Jennifer is specifically uh, addressing the story that I've alluded to on the podcast before. I think I've said I've told the story on Patreon. Yeah, maybe. Uh, shall I tell the story? Yeah, I think for so. For Oliver? All right. So I, if you've listened for a while, you've probably heard me reference this. <laughs> and I think I've said stuff like, if you want to hear that story, let me know. This is a story, my the makes you think story is the story of one of my favorite interactions I've ever had with a child. This was when I was working uh, in a nature center. A while ago, we used to do these educational event days where it would be like a camp and we'd have kids come in and we'd just do activities with them over the course of the day, like a science camp. And this particular day, I had a great group of kids who were like ages 8 through 12, I think. So 
late elementary school, middle school, and we were doing all sorts of cool activities. And it was a great day because the activities were fun. The kids were all really into it. I had a great assistant named Mark who was helping me out with stuff. We had just done an activity where we were talking about buoyancy and density and the kids kept asking great questions and we spun off into like optics and physics and light and they were eating it up and Mark was drawing diagrams on the board and it was great. Everyone was having fun. And then it was lunchtime. So I was like, all right, uh, this is awesome, but we have to keep on schedule. So <laughs> you must eat. Everybody get your lunch and uh, I, me and Mark were going to take turns. I would go eat lunch myself while he stayed with the kids and they ate lunch. And then after they were done with lunch, I came back to take the kids out for a recess to go run around in the field for a bit while Mark went to eat his lunch. So I came back to the room and I discovered that a certain subsection of the kids had continued their science investigations with Mark. And Mark was like all into space and astronomy and stuff. So he was I came in and Mark was regaling this small group of like five of the kids with just cosmos, cosmic science and all sorts of things about the universe. And the kids were having a great time. Uh, and then I came in and I was like, all right, recess time. So Mark finished what he was saying and then he left to go eat lunch. And I told all the kids, all right, everybody come line up. And one of the kids, his name was Stephanos. He was probably about nine years old. He was this short, baby-faced kid, and his baby face was surrounded by this curly brown hair. He was a very cute kid. He had been over in the, the little corner where Mark was telling them all sorts of cool science stuff. And I was standing by the door waiting for the kids to line up. And Stephanos walked up to me with this wide-eyed, delighted look on his face as though he had glimpsed the secret inner workings of the universe <laughs> and was hungry for more. He had spent half an hour just learning, having his mind blown, and he wanted more of it. And he walked up to me and he said, hey. And I said, hey, Stephanos. And he said, dogs have four legs. And I said, that's true. <laughs> and he looked around the room and he looked back at me and said, chairs have four legs <laughs> and i said yeah and he said with his big grin on his baby face but we don't call dogs chairs <laughs> and i said that's right and he leaned in and said makes you think <laughs> and it was my it's my favorite interaction i've ever had with a child i think and i said you're right it does make me think and i hope that that kid is in a science department yep. somewhere <laughs> or in philosophy thinking about chairs just just thinking uh there was a little bit there was a brief uh, period of time where i was campaigning for makes you think to be the tagline for the podcast yep yep <laughs> common descent podcast makes you think. think so shout out to stephanos <laughs> wherever wherever that kid is now it is lovely watching <laughs> kids minds work through new information and and try to use new skills fantastic uh thank you jennifer for <laughs> encouraging that story next question is from luke what do you think the impact would have been if Homo erectus had reached Australia? Mm. Ooh, bad, probably. Probably. <laughs> probably. 
yeah, I don't know how they would have interacted with the Australian wildlife at that time. So it, it would have been a major shift. Uh, I, I would wonder if that would have led to a greater diversity of descendant human species or subspecies from Homo erectus. Yes, that's what I was just starting to think. Would there have been a, a unique Australian lineage of Homo erectus or their descendants? Which, if Homo erectus persisted there, almost certainly, mm-hmm. or, or some, you know, close equivalent, yeah. uh, they might have branched off in a very different way, potentially, with yeah. that, that isolation. They might not have lasted once Homo sapiens uh, went over there, yep. uh, being native fauna and all that. <laughs> and considering what we tend to do to those things. Yeah. So, mm, interesting. Yeah. Next up is TJ. In James Patterson's sci-fi novel, Zoo, there's a form of eusociality across mammal species. I know there's a lot of monsterification involved in that, but I was wondering if there's any way there could be eusociality across different species, and how would you find gentlemen evolve the idea? Interesting. So eusociality, where instead of there being different castes within this population... I guess, different species serving as the different casts within mm-hmm. the pop. It makes me think of uh, Planet of the Apes, yep. where you've got gorillas and orangutans and chimps in a society, each with different roles in the society. Yes. Uh, and the, the first thought I had was, in a very pseudo way, we kind of have that with dogs mm-hmm. and even cats. Yeah. But like, especially dogs, where... Not entirely and not mindlessly, but dogs very often will sacrifice themselves because we've bred them yeah. to have that level of loyalty and, and devotion to their task, will be self-sacrificial to get the job done that they are set out to do for the benefit of the greater human community that they are living among. Yeah. So, like, that is, you know, that's not It's full. not quite there, but it's it's on the way. Well, and, and domesticated animals... In general, mm-hmm. uh, outside of humans, I I would wonder if something like that couldn't show up from cases of really intimate symbiotic relationships. Yeah. Like corals or coral reefs even. Uh, I could certainly, there are certainly examples in the world today where different species work together or have evolved to work together, whether they're doing it sort of consciously or not, to this species does this behavior in this other species takes advantage of it and they kind of tolerate each other. So perhaps some sort of symbiosis that becomes extreme yep, yep, yep. over time. Yeah. And so yeah, you you need a situation mm. where they are in close, close relation like symbiotes, uh, yeah. symbionts. And that their evolutionary selective paths are aligned. Yeah. And then sociality would have to come up, I think. So I think you like the other thought I had was uh, muskrats and beavers where muskrats will mm. live inside the lodge with the beavers and they don't help build the lodge, but they will help stock it and they will help, you know, even maintain the cleanliness a bit. And so you have a kind of cooperative kind of, you know, beneficial to both yeah. that if the muskrats became reliant to survive upon beavers that, Outside of a beaver den, muskrats just can't. Right. They have to reproduce within the beaver den. Yep. And that's the only place. And then they start becoming super beneficial to the beavers while they're in there. Now mm. you have 
a symbiotic relationship that is that's not going to split up. Yeah. You know, it's not just... Uh, now you're like lichens. Exactly. You're stuck together. So now if beaver communities grow and you have a used social beaver lodge or something, you could have muskrat drones that are helping maintain the lodge and are breeding, but they're not actually in charge of what's happening. Yeah. So it, it, it's fun because it doesn't, it doesn't seem quite as far-fetched as it initially feels, mm-hmm. but also I'm sure that it's uh, it hasn't happened. Yes. Which makes one wonder if it could happen. Yeah. We only have the one eusocial mammal with naked mole rats, as far as mm-hmm. we know, and that you'd need that to happen again with a different group of mammals that yes. also has a very close relationship with another group of mammals. Yes. So maybe someday. <laughs> Michael asks, aside from the fossil sites you've already covered, what are some of your favorite fossil sites or formations that you hope to cover in future episodes? Oh, very good question. Ah, There's a lot of cool formations and fossil sites. Uh, there's a lot of famous places like the Messel Pit in Germany, uh, the, the Gogo Formation in Australia, the mm-hmm. Chem Chem Beds in Africa, uh, the, uh, oh, oh, can't, like, it's not coming to me, but the, the old Triassic South American uh, formations where you get some of the earliest dinosaur fossils. Uh, oh yeah, there's there's tons. There's the trilobite beds up in New York. There are all sorts of cool fossil deposits. Yeah, there's there's plenty for us to continue to talk about. So any of those really? Yeah. I, so suggest them. I, yeah, I, I don't have a particular <laughs> preference of one that I'm specifically excited for. Yeah, um, whatever croc formation is out there. <laughs> Next is Adrian, who says. As I've studied natural history, I sometimes find that I chase my curiosity all the way to the point where answers are not yet known by science. In the area of paleontology slash natural history, what mysteries have you hooked waiting for an answer? Ooh, I first thought origins of life. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that'd be cool. I actually, even more than that, life elsewhere, uh, uh, extraterrestrial life. Yep, yep. Are we going to find evidence of life currently or having in the past existed on Mars or some other body in the solar system. That's one for me that is like that. I, I will be a little disappointed if I die and we still haven't gotten an answer to that question. Yes. Yes. Because it's, it's, it's so possible for us to find that evidence in my lifetime. When I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to be like, come on, NASA quick. Come on. (laughs) <laughs> I'm running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. To those big questions. Uh, life definitely is is a big one for me as well. I also find that while researching episodes, I'll get stuck on little ones where like I'll be curious of like how, how you know, what, what what do we think that this one might have like walked like or something or like mm-hmm. I'm having trouble picturing the the posture or anatomy that you're describing for this animal. And then I can't find any description or art of yeah. like how that one might have stood just because that's either not been discussed regularly enough to reach it someplace I'd find it or we don't have enough of it to know. And those often are like, well, I can't form my mental image <laughs> of this extinct organism well because it's I haven't been able to find one that will let me form it. Yeah. Next up, Peter asks... What was your favorite news piece this year? Uh, and Jesse similarly asks, what were some of your favorite studies you featured on the news this year? Hmm. This question is always tough because I definitely 
forget a lot of our newses. Yep. And if I remember them, I don't always remember what year they were. Mm-mm. Nope. Was it this year or a previous year? There was a ton of cool news. Like, there was a lot of really cool dinosaur stuff this year. Yeah, like, I'll remember... Dinosaur eggs. Oh, there was that news, very recent news, about the uh, viviparous snake from the Messel Pits. That's super cool. That's definitely top uh, way up at the top of my list. Uh, You mentioned dinosaur eggs, and I think think the soft shell news, that was... That sounds like it was probably this year. Yeah, was that this year? If so, that was super cool. I think this year we also got the egg-in-egg pathology uh, from a dinosaur egg. So those are some those are some cool ones. See, that's what will happen with me is a topic will come up and I'll suddenly go, hey, we've I said I have a memory of us talking about that in the news. I but if you asked, you know, just for me to think of that news without prompting, I it's not in my brain until yep. the topic comes back up. <laughs> <laughs> Next question from Jackson. Imagine building a team of adventurers to go on a quest Final Fantasy style with three prehistoric animals. What three prehistoric animals would be on your team? Oh, interesting. So we need a a, a bruiser. Yeah, a tank. And a, and a, yeah, a tank and a sneak. Yeah. Right, a rogue. Um, I mean, healer is probably going to be hard to find. Yeah, not really healer, but... So a wizard. Yes. Yeah, something long range. <laughs> uh, you got to have a mount. Yes. Right, one of them's got to be a mount. So like a ceratopsian. A ceratopsian would be very cool. Something I could ride around. Mm-hmm. Or like an indricothere. Mm-hmm. Any of the really big pachyderms would also be yep. cool. Yep. Something like a dromaeosaur or a or a cat mm-hmm. would be a good scout. Yep. You know, go send it in places to retrieve things or to, to scope things out. That's your stealth and your striker. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, another cool thing for a scout would be something uh, uh, flying. Yeah. Like reconnaissance. So you have you have your thing with sharp teeth and then you have, you know, a little early bird or something. Yeah. Are we going or to be small pterosaur to send out and oh, yeah. scout the area? Yep. Well, you could have a messenger mm-hmm. for sending, a, you know, to send for help. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I will cheat and say um, a Neanderthal. And a Denisovan <laughs> and uh, an ancient human. And then we'll just we'll just be a team. Yep. Yep. We'll get them costumes and everything. <laughs> I think for me, I would want to go with Stegodon, big elephant. Sure. That then lets me cheat and have a mount and a dexterous smart. Oh, uh, yeah. That's the whole team. Yep. <laughs> that's the whole team right there. And a tank. Yep. <laughs> I'm good to go. And then I will just have little little fun friends. And then pets. Yeah. <laughs> Familiars. <laughs> I have a little Simasuchus to yep. be my little... My little lap croc, uh, and then I'll have a little little pterosaur. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Nolan says, everyone has that one topic that they're obsessed with and could talk about at length at any time. What's yours? FYI, just saying paleontology is too easy because, well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of have made that the career. Yeah. Uh, for me, it definitely shifts which one I would name depending on what phase I'm in in my hobbies. Yes. <laughs> uh, Lego. Sure. I could talk about Lego nonstop if you if you let me. Uh, Star Wars is definitely up there for me. And uh, Aliens and Predators are probably my the yeah. other one that those are the ones I can nerd out about at, at the drop of a hat. I could definitely talk at length about like linguistics, language studies, things like that. 
Uh, I could certainly do something like the Marvel movies. Oh, yeah. And just go on a long tirade about whatever storyline. Uh, my go-to number one one for as far as fandoms and stuff go is absolutely Pokemon. Yep. I could talk about Pokemon all day. Easy. Yeah. yeah. It makes me think of the, I've seen this going around on TikTok, the what thing could you give a presentation on, mm-hmm. a 40-minute presentation on without any preparation? Yeah. These things. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. If someone's like, can you talk for 40 minutes about Pokemon? And I, I would go, 40 minutes? Sure. All right. <laughs> what part? <laughs> what do you want me to leave out? <laughs> Next, we have another two questions that go well together. Lassie asks, what are the best snake and croc Pokemon? And Joe would like to know, Will, what do you think of Huecoco line in the new Pokemon games? Good question. So there's a bunch of crocs. Mm -hmm. Croc Pokemon, Totodile line, Sandile line, and Huecoco line now. All beautiful. Yeah, Huecoco line is awesome. I love the Huecoco line. I think Huecoco is adorable and just the cutest little bean. Uh, and then all the way at the end, Skeleturge is awesome. Very cool. <laughs> so Very cool. cool. Uh, I like all the Croc mm-hmm. Pokemon. Feraligator is super cool. I uh, used to be much harsher on Feraligator mm-hmm. back in the day because it doesn't look crocky particularly. Yeah. Like, Totodile's adorable and fine, and it looks like a little standing up Croc. But then by the time you get to Feraligator, you have these big long arms and this this yeah it's a it's a kaiju yeah, alligator and a very tall face but not a long face uh but it's still cool like yeah. you still look cool you look like a kaiju you you're this awesome reptile dude not very alligatory but <laughs> you're cool enough I welcome you <laughs> uh, as far as snake Pokemon there's a bunch of cool snake Pokemon I really like Superior. Mm-hmm. And I quite like Seviper. Yes. I think Seviper is very cool. I never think... Well, so when I think of snake Pokemon, I think of the ones that are based on actual snakes. Yep. Like Arbok and Seviper and Superior. Technically, Onyx and Steelix are called snake. They're called yes. the, the rock snake and the iron snake. And Steelix is the best Pokemon not named Mewtwo. <laughs> Steelix is quite, Steelix is my absolute... I love Steelix. But I don't think of it as a snake Pokemon. Yeah. Because it's not really a, like an actual snake. Other than the fact that you're long, there's nothing snaky about you. Yeah. So Superior <laughs> is often my go-to favorite yeah. uh, snake Pokemon. Uh, as far as my favorite, uh, the Crocodile, Sandile the Crocodile, yep, yep. that's my favorite. I think they are fantastic. I like them a lot. Yeah. Very Cause, cool. Because they're crocky all the way through. That's why I like them. They yeah. look like Crocs every step of the way. They do not get more or less crocky, which both of the others do. Yeah. <laughs> One gets more crocky, the other gets less crocky. <laughs> Jenny asks, if humans never existed, what would Earth be like today? Uh, a lot greener. Yep. Uh, more biodiverse. More biodiverse. Uh, there'd be less uh, intermixing of species between the continents. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about this before, that there has been so much throughout human history of moving things around the uh, across continents not only with animals but also with plants that there are certain species of plants that i know archaeologists and archaeobotanists have a hard time figuring out where they came from yep because they've been spread so much around the world by people yes but by and large it would probably look fairly similar just more diverse, more lush, you know, healthier ecosystems. Uh, but a lot of the 
big weird things that went extinct were not for sure because of us. Right. Some of those, perhaps many of those, likely would have been extinct anyway. Yeah. So we we very likely, or very, or at least very potentially, would still not have mammoths or saber tooth cats and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it might not be as weird looking. You know, as it looks today, as you might think, we would have stuff like stellar sea cow. Absolutely. So, like, we a would lot of, have... A lot of island species mm-hmm. would still be around. Dodos would probably still be around. Healthier ecosystems worldwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, less lights. More whales. More whales. A lot more whales. Absolutely. Yeah. Next up, Daniel would like to know, will you still be working at Gray over the next year... I am planning a visit sometime next year with the family. Yes, I'll be there. Uh, like, I, like I said before, if you're going to come visit Gray, uh, say hi. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you see us, say hi. Feel free to let us know that you're going to be coming by. We like saying hi and meeting uh, some of our fans. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll be there. I'm there all the time. Uh, and if we know you're coming, maybe we'll be there. Yep, I'll drive over. <laughs> I should leave the house sometime. Speaking of Gray, the next question is from Sarah from the Prep Lab. Hi, Sarah. Sarah asks, what's the extinct animal you would most like to see made into a Pokemon? Any mammal. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's been my big thing for a while. It, it just some extinct mammal would be very cool. Yeah. Ground sloth would be very mm-hmm. cool. And in Dracothere would be very cool. Yep. We've gotten mammoth-like things. And we've got saber-toothed cat-shaped things. Yep. But like an actual fossil Pokemon that was based off of a, a extinct mammal would be really cool. Yeah. I'd love to see some uh, like some cool Paleozoic stuff. Mm-hmm. Like even a trilobite. Yep. There hasn't really been a trilobite Pokemon, especially if it was one of those weird spiky ones or with the ornamentation or like a one of those long-shelled nautiloids mm-hmm. would make a very cool-looking Pokemon. So those would be a lot of fun. Yes. <laughs> Something not from the Mesozoic. Yes, no, that that <laughs> would be very cool. Also, I'd like to put uh, 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 the suggestion forward for like fossil plants, mm-hmm. like a Lepidodendron Pokemon, the scale tree. It could be grass and dragon or some something cool. That'd be pretty fun. Yeah. We've got another twofer. Clint asks, what are your favorite D&D monsters? And John asks, what are your favorite D&D creatures to encounter? Ooh, there are a bunch of cool D&D monsters. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to use D&D monsters as a DM and also encounter a little bit. Uh, classics like dragons are always fun. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's probably my favorite just because I like they're, dragons They're the so best. versatile and, yeah. and interesting. I really, in theory, like using mimics. <laughs> uh, it seems to not work very consistently. Uh, Will has reminded me that I really like Ankhegs. Yes. Yes, I've used Ankhegs a number of times, and I really like them. I, I always have a good time. They're And they're super cool. I Recently in our, our campaign, I got to use the Flail Snail, mm-hmm. and I, re- I was really excited uh, to use the Flail Snail. Flail Snail was fun. Wes asks, how would you speculatively evolve a legless mammal? Uh, I would make it aquatic. Yeah, the same way you evolve a legless anything as aquatic or fossorial. Yes. Like, it feels like, of the mammals we know, whales or, like, ferrets <laughs> would be a good starting point. Yes. Uh, but make them do something where the limbs are in the way. Yep, yep. Yeah, aquatic is probably where I, I, I would lean, just since we already, we've already seen that. Like, we've not seen full-blown limb loss 
for any terrestrial like digging animal mammals uh they all still have very functional limbs because they're often using that's what they're using to that's dig what they're with. digging with they don't have shovel faces like digging lizards but like whales the fins are there to steer and everything but the tail is doing all of the work for moving them forward through the water so like i could absolutely see it that you could have one without front flippers still being able to function. Yeah, especially if you gave it... Like, I'm thinking of, like, an eel, which undulates mm-hmm. all the way down. Give them flaps off to the side so that their whole body can undulate. Like a nudibrank. Yep, yep. <laughs> Swimming through the water. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Stephanie asks, if you could assign a genre of music to different times in geological history, what would they be and why? Ooh. I wish I was more of a music person because that's a fantastic question. Same. That is a fantastic question. I like the image of a sort of serene, early Paleozoic ocean with classical music playing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Though I would picture like the very earliest stuff should be like almost just the meditation music where it's barely there. Yeah. There's barely any music. I do. I love it. It would be super cool. Maybe someone's done this. To have a timeline of Earth history with music that tracks the diversity of mm-hmm. life. And it starts out as just, you know, a, a single note yep. or very quiet, simple music. And then different instruments get added and different harmonies get incorporated as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. That'd be neat. Uh, we could cheat and say uh, Rite of Spring uh, sure. for Fantasia. <laughs> I don't know what the setup for this joke is, but the punchline is rock music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say rock music for the Mesozoic. Sure. Uh, mostly because of how it's perceived. Yes. But also it was it, it was a very active time in, uh, for Earth life. Like very dramatic. Very dramatic. Uh, so some some cool rock music there. Yeah. When humans show up, uh, heavy metal and other jokes about yeah. human stuff. And nowadays, I'd say dubstep because it's just a mess. <laughs> yes, and just just some chaotic. It's just sandstorm. It's it, and well, it gets it's, faster and faster. It's oh, there's a whole genre of music that is that like purposely off tempo music. Like mm-hmm. I don't know what the name of it is, but yeah, I don't know enough about there. Music. There is that music that. It, very purposely does not follow yes. a musical. That's what we're in right now. <laughs> also, uh, I would love to pick something like the Triassic period or maybe also like the Ediacaran period and go with like trance and techno. <laughs> yes. Just weird stuff. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I I also just had a picture of like that. I don't think it's I don't think I'm using swing. I don't think it's swing music, but like the, the 50s upbeat, like just that mm-hmm. very... Right after the KPG for mammals. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Just finally be able to party. Uh, the I can see clearly now the rain is gone. <laughs> Chris says, you've commented a few times about ancient animals for which we have no modern correlate in body shape or lifestyle. What about the reverse? What modern niches or lifestyles have no ancient correlates and are presumed to be new, unique or unprecedented? Hmm. Well, I, th- I think the issue we run into that is depending on how literally you want to take no ancient representatives, because everything we have now has a fossil record. Sure. So there are, you know, old right. examples. Their ancestors. Yes. Were doing that same thing. But as far as like 
just reaching farther back through time, uh, the I.I. was the first thing that came to mind for me hmm. of like, I, I can't think of another other than ancestral I.I.s that we've seen shaped that way, seemed shaped a similar way. There's like woodpeckers that are doing a similar thing, but not at all with that. Anatomy. There is a dinosaur whose name I don't remember. Are these the Scansoriopterygids? There are certain dinosaurs that have a long finger. Oh, yes. That have been yes. suspected to maybe be doing something like that. Yes, you're right. Uh, right. So there might actually be yeah. a correlate. Uh, but then again, th this is one of the tricky things also is that so much that makes modern animals unique is stuff that doesn't fossilize. Yes. So it can be very difficult to know if that existed in the past. Which also goes for when we describe something as not having a modern correlate. It might, if we were to see it with soft tissue and behaving, mm -hmm. we might go, well, that there's nothing like that today. And then you put all of the dressings on the skeleton. And there it is. And then it starts behaving and go, oh, you're just a cow. Yes. You're just a cow that was <laughs> weird, but you're basically a herd animal or whatever it is. So we are also missing a lot of stuff that might make them more familiar we just have the anatomy, and according to the anatomy, there's nothing quite with the face of a triceratops. Yeah. But they might behave in a way that we'd recognize. I was trying to see if I can think of any particularly weird things today. I mean, going back in our conversation, naked mole rats. I had that thought, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> you social mammals. We haven't had any evidence that that's happened in the past either. Like, yeah. There's no evidence that seems to suggest that that's evolved before that. So that this could be... I have no clue. Mm -hmm. I don't want to even say it potentially, but could be the first ever instance yeah. of you social mammals. Yeah, I'm sure there's something. Sure there's something. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Desert would like to know, during my outings, I scan the rocks everywhere I go, but I have no idea what I'm looking for, and then get frustrated that I can't find anything. <laughs> what the heck am I looking for? <laughs> Uh, it's a good it's a good question. Mm -hmm. It depends on where you are. Yes, very much so. Um, I will, I'd love to say if you're scanning the rocks, you're looking for things that don't look like rocks. But that's also not true, yep. depending on where you are and what you're looking for. Um, honestly, the best way to try to find fossils uh, if you're if you're scanning your local rocks is to look up what formation you're in, what what kind of rocks you have and what kind of fossils are found there. Yes, because it. It really is very difficult to look at some rocks without any idea of what's supposed to be there and then find the thing that's supposed to be there. Yes. Like, if you already have an image in your head, now you're doing an, a, a seek and find. You know what to look for. So if you're surrounded by limestone, you want to look for aquatic things. And if it's you know, whatever else, it's something different. If you're surrounded by igneous rocks, you're looking in vain. So I would say... Find out what fossils are found in your area and what fossils are found in the kind of rocks you're seeing. Go talk to a person at a museum or something mm -hmm. if you need and learn what to sort of make the key images to keep in your mind for when you're scanning. Yes. And absolutely. Like even if you go with like a group of paleontologists to a road cut, which we've mentioned before, is a great place to find small fossils because it's been recently cut out of the rock instead of eroded, which can often make your chances less likely because the erosion is destroying the stuff slowly as it's exposing it. So you might not notice it because it's already been worn away. Yes. 
But even when you go with a group of paleontologists to a road cut, it's still a lot of us picking up rocks and going, huh? Mm-mm. Huh? Mm-mm. And huh? also, Mm-mm. some of us are way better at finding stuff than others. It's yeah. just a, it, some people are good at it or more practiced at it. I have never been very good <laughs> at spotting fossils. I just I I I always find less than the other people that I'm with. I just for whatever reason I just don't. Yeah, doesn't work well for me. I've not had a ton of of just sudden successes. Yeah, some people are the people that find something every time, and you go out there and they're like, "Hey, I found this new species," and it's like, "What did? Why? Who did you pay? Why did we bring you?" <laughs> Janelle asks. Would the gizzard stones of big dinosaurs be audible if you were standing nearby? Ooh, I mean, potentially. Maybe. Like, especially if you put your ear up to their belly. Like, <laughs> I, I, you can hear stomach noises going on inside stuff, so I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I actually reached out to someone to ask this question. Yeah? Yep. I figured we happen to know somebody who works closely with large reptiles that have gizzard stones in their bellies. So I emailed Marissa, yeah, uh, who is the uh, Dr. Teas, who we talked to uh, for Croc Month. And I asked, I said, can you hear gizzard stones in crocs and gators? Uh, and Marissa said, from my experience with crocs and alligators, you don't hear the stones when they eat, etc. cetera. Uh, with crocs and gators, their stomach mucosa is so thick, I could see it acting as a sound barrier. Yeah, that they're they're It's not fluid enough to let them yeah. jostle and make a lot of noise. So, yeah, that the closest thing that we know to someone who could have life experience for this, uh, it sounds like probably not. Yeah. Which also makes sense. Like, yeah. Yeah. You, know, you, don't, you don't hear like the bones of food crunching around inside mm-hmm. of a stomach. So like it, our stomachs are, are decently soundproof until they gurgle, you know, for some reason. Yes. <laughs> Tater boy. Says, in Pokemon Generation 1, the player comes across two intact fossils in Mount Moon, the Helix fossil and the Dome fossil. Would these two fossils be realistically found intact in the same formation in a, in a mountainous cave like Mount Moon? I love this question because I've thought about this. Yeah. This is a good... So, could is it realistic to find the Helix fossil and the Dome fossil intact in the same place in Mount Moon? Uh, yeah. Absolutely, I think. Yeah. Because they are both shallow ocean organisms. Yep. Uh, mountains are often filled with limestone. Mm-hmm. Caves are often carved in limestone. Limestone forms in shallow oceans. That's the, the kind of uh, sediment you'd expect to find real life aminoids and, and horseshoe crab type things. Those are also uh, depositional environments that sometimes do preserve very intact specimens so in terms of the environment and the kinds of fossils and the kinds of rocks you find in the mountain yeah absolutely you could find those both there yeah we have lots of examples of ocean fossils found in or on top of mountain ranges all the time in in the real world yeah and that limestone and other stones that get pushed up there now the really interesting question if you dive into the pokedex side of things is that ammonite from the helix fossil is inferred if you connect various Pokedex entries to each other to have lived about 100 million years ago. And Kabuto's Pokedex entries say that it dates back 300 million years, which would suggest either that you've got a gap of time Mm -hmm. that they shouldn't be found in the same rock layers. But there are other Pokedex entries that say that Kabuto is still alive today. Yes. So presumably they have been around for 300 million years and thus could have overlapped 
100 million years ago with Ammonite. Exactly. They date back that far, but they have been around yes. the whole time. Who was it that asked what's the topic we could talk about <laughs> at length at a moment's notice? <laughs> the next question is from David, who says, how did you two meet and how did you come up with the podcast idea? David, this was supposed to be for the listeners to ask us questions. I'm curious. <laughs> I don't remember. What our story is. <laughs> Who are you? What are we telling people these days? Uh, we met in grad school. Yes. Uh, we went to the same master's program. We became friends because we like the same movies and stuff. And technically, I met you the summer before I went to grad school. You met me the summer before I met you. <laughs> yep. <Yeah. laughs> um, and then years later, uh, we thought we like talking so much mm -hmm. and we like talking about paleontology stuff so much that we might as well do it more. And it was both it was during a time where both of us were doing jobs outside of paleontology. And so we were both stuck very much in the we're still getting to educate, but we haven't gotten to talk or had reason to stay up to date on fossil stuff in a long time. Mm -hmm. And we were both feeling kind of kind of itchy about it. And yeah, we wanted to get more back into more fossil stuff. Yep, And the podcast was a nice reason to do that and way to get that energy out. Yeah. Plus, we're two talkative white dudes, and that <laughs> seems like it's a thing that. Pairs of talkative white dudes do. It was expected. <laughs> we were actually past our, our time. We, we were behind schedule. <laughs> Next question from Chandra. Are modern ant societies the most complex natural societies apart from humans? Or is there fossil evidence for more complex societies? Ooh. Uh, I'd say almost surely yes. modern ant societies. There is fossil evidence for ancient ant eusociality. Yes. So we know that they've been doing that uh, for some time. But yeah, I don't know of anything else that even comes close to what ants are doing. Yeah. And even with past ants, I, I've never heard of any evidence that showed that they were like surpassing today's ants in complexity. Right. Like, it's very likely that the most complex ants are the ones around today. Yeah. Uh, and I... Even in comparison to the human society, they rival us at a lot of times. Yes. <laughs> like, I wonder if they're, I wonder how ants fared across uh, the Ice Age. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if during the Miocene or Oligocene or something, were there even more diverse? Yeah, did we lose a bunch? Yeah, have we lost some of our ant society diversity? Uh, who knows? Yeah. Daniel asks, given the wide range of reproductive methods among mammals today, how useful is phylogenetic bracketing when working out the reproduction of extinct mammal groups such as multi-tuberculates? Can we determine with any confidence whether certain groups retained egg-laying versus live birth? Uh, we did talk about this a little bit in the, uh, the episode 154 that uh, it seems like what happened is that live birth evolved in the common ancestor of placentals and marsupials and those two lineages inherited live birth. And outside of that, as far as we know, presumably egg laying was retained like it is in monotremes today. Yes. So to an extent, we can just, yeah, if you're within one of these two lineages, reasonably, we can say live birth. If you are outside of one of those, we can reasonably say egg laying. I don't know where multi-tuberculates fall off the top of my head. I think they're outside those two groups, and therefore we might assume that they were egg layers. Mm -hmm. 
But live birth has also evolved repeatedly uh, in numerous groups, so it's entirely possible it also evolved in multiple mammal lineages. Which kind of answers the question of how how useful is phylogenetic bracketing for determining ancient groups that we no longer have a, a modern representative of, mm-hmm. like multi-tuberculates. There's definitely inferences that we can draw from it that, according to our knowledge of mammal evolution, it's likely multi-tuberculates were laying eggs, but they might have done something, evolved live birth on their own, and we just don't have the fossil evidence for that. Yeah. The bracketing wouldn't show that because that would be separate, a separate event from the mammals we have today. Yes. So it's partially useful. Yes. So it can give us ideas. It can give us inklings. Like, it leans this way. That's probably, or at least what our current knowledge suggests was most likely. Right. That's our best guess with what we have. So we'll kind of... Hold that off to the side as, all right, this is this is the maybe that we are currently have on staff. Mm-hmm. But at some point, we might find a multi-tuberculate with little babies in its belly. And all right, well, yeah. now we know. There we go. That flips things on its head a bit. Next question from Aaron. What would be a dream news headline or study title that you'd love to read in 2023? Ooh. I'm tempted to go back to the fully preserved Spinosaurus or T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Just put an end to it. That that the news will be the discovery of the fossil we requested from the fossil record. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the last, in the previous question. I, I do actually know two fossil headlines that will be available in 2023. Uh, that are both going to be pretty cool. There's two papers that just recently came out from the Gray Fossil site naming new species, and they will be circulating uh, early next year. <laughs> uh, I had a news headline that would be very satisfying to see is breaking news. Hollywood agrees. Feathered dinosaurs. Pretty cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. Yes. That. <laughs> I don't have a follow up joke to that. <laughs> Val asks. In your Tyrannosaurus episode, you said something about the size of the skull versus the size of the teeth. Do we know whether the skull got bigger first and then the teeth filled the available space, or if the teeth started getting bigger and the skull evolved to accommodate them? Are there examples in the fossil record of one trait that clearly facilitated or pushed the evolution of another trait in the same organism? Ooh. Uh, I don't know for T-Rex. No, I do not uh, know. I, or, and the Tyrannosaurs. I don't know if we know if one started before the other. Uh, I do know that Tyrannosaurs often have very big heads. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible that the skull size got bigger and teeth followed, but I don't know if we see that in the fossil record specifically. Uh, there are definitely cases where we see traits sort of linked or responding to each other evolutionarily. It is often, though, difficult to determine, it's, you know, the a chicken and egg scenario that it can be tricky to determine which trait drove which one. Yes. Because if you're actually, like if you were to actually watch it, even like with T-Rex, you probably wouldn't be able to go, Oh, the head just got a little bit bigger. And now the teeth just got a little bit. Right. They're happening very hand in hand, you know, unless you were to actually able to like slow-mo editor style evolution (laughs) down and watch it. Literally. Generation by generation. The evolution equivalent of frame by frame. Yes. But if you just have the fossils, it's probably still going to be tricky to determine which is happening. And it could switch. Mm -hmm. You could have an earlier Tyrannosaur 
heads start getting bigger and the teeth start following. But then a later one, the teeth get bigger for some reason and then the head follows. So which one's driving, which could change place as evolution goes on, depending on what it's being beneficial. Is it better to have big teeth or a big head? is going to be the main selective pressure, and then the other is going to follow. And we see that in some things like a lot of large animals, like elephants and sauropods, tend to have pillar-like legs, and Mm -hmm. that's very common for big animals. And some of that, you know, legs moving underneath the body, legs being pillar-like, it can be very difficult to tease out. Is that something that evolved in response to them getting bigger, or is it something that evolved for some reason that allowed them to yes. get bigger? Yeah, it, that's always very difficult. Do you have that because you're big, or are you big because you had that? Mm-hmm. And it, that's that's why we say the chicken or it. It's very <laughs> tricky because really they are connected. Yes. Probably a little bit of both, depending on the animal and even the point in their evolution. Mm-hmm. Great questions we're getting. Yeah. Frank says, we know that certain Ice Age animal and plant species survived longer in certain places thanks to favorable microclimates, so-called refuge populations. Is something like this conceivable for dinosaurs, that in certain places certain non-avian dinosaur populations survived the KPG extinction for several generations, maybe even centuries or millennia, without being included in the fossil record? Uh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that it, it, it is very unlikely that the KPG extinction, that everything that went extinct during that extinction went extinct the same year or decade or century. This would have been a protracted decline for a lot of ecosystems. Not every part of the world, not every ecosystem would have been impacted the same amount by what was going on at that time. Uh, so, yeah, it's very possible that certain Cretaceous envi- uh, uh, ecosystems, certain Cretaceous populations lasted longer than others. Yeah. Uh, how long they last, because uh, the, the question says even centuries or millennia, that is unlikely to show up in the fossil record. That's yep. a very short amount of time. From our perspective, it is instantaneous in the geologic record. But yeah, it could have been hundreds or thousands of years of gradually around the world things transitioning into Cenozoic ecosystems. Especially if you think about environments that don't often preserve super well, like islands or something. Like mm-hmm. If a, po- a population of dinosaurs could have held on an island for us, we have lots of species on islands today that are the last remaining members of their groups. Yeah. And so you could have had that for a while, and then that island just eroded and didn't leave fossils, and we don't know that that island ever existed. Yeah. Our next question comes from an old person. Hey, I like those people. (laughs) (laughs) What happened to punctuated equilibrium and the legacy of Stephen Jay Gould? Oh, good question. Uh, That's kind of it. it, That was more from a either or scenario, like the concept that it was either punctuated equilibrium or consistent change. Right. There was this period of time where there was a lot of back and forth between phyletic gradualism and punctuated equilibrium as different ideas of the rates of evolutionary change. These days, punctuated equilibrium is still around. Yes. It is still referenced all the time. It isn't a hot topic debated idea like it was when Stephen Jay Gould was there to sort of, you know, write dramatic essays and stuff about it, because now it's been incorporated into our general understanding of evolutionary uh, history. Precisely. It's not just 
the either or option, we know that evolution happens at different rates for different situations and different groups and different species. And sometimes it follows a more punctuated equilibrium pattern. Other mm -hmm. times it doesn't. So it's just kind of been folded into the general theory of evolution. Yes, absolutely. <gasps> Next question from Kayla. Kayla, because it has an explanation. <laughs> it sure does. Some of our listeners are very enthusiastic. What is a trait or organism that you that you're surprised hasn't evolved to our knowledge on our planet? That's an interesting question. I think uh, flightless bats. Yeah, that's yes. When I did the a... bat episode, that I had that moment of like, "Hey, wait a minute! Why aren't there flightless bats?" Yes. What's the deal with that? And for that matter, why don't we have fossils that seem like they were flightless pterosaurs? Yes, that's the other one. Mm -hmm. Because birds become flightless left and right, yeah. and insects become flightless left and right. Yes. Why is the ground not good enough <laughs> for <laughs> no, those no. two groups? We left. We've ascended above it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'd be my go-to answer. That's And it's a question we've asked mm -hmm. here on the podcast. Helen asks, The spooky verse is now inhabited by many different and varied creatures. How would they interact with one another? Good question. A lot of them would prey on each other. Yes. <laughs> we've, been, we've created a lot of scary animals. I was going to say, by the nature of spooky, many of them are predatory and yeah. dangerous. <laughs> uh, but also, if depending on how we viewed the, the, the way they were in the world, they could also be fairly rare. Like a number of them might not be mm -hmm. super common or there might only be a few species of them. Yeah. So they might be kind of far and few between for some of them. I could. Uh, I like to think about... Uh, some of them would certainly prey upon each other. Yes. Like we did a bunch of sea creatures. Like our sirens would absolutely be on the menu oh, yeah. for our sea cre our sea serpents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but I also like to think of symbiotic relationships. I like to imagine that some one of our like our vampire shrews or our werewolves, if they lived in the same forest as our person-eating plants, mm -hmm. maybe they could develop a habit of luring or herding prey towards it and then when it gets caught they're specialized to go in and avoid the thorns and stuff and get some meat off of it were our ant-eating owlbear echidnas one of the driving forces for our mimic to become so defensive and aggressive oh yeah it could be yeah, yeah. someday we'll put together a whole <laughs> just a whole treatise yes on the ecological interactions in the spookyverse absolutely next up we have a longtime listener the best kind of listener. That's not true. We love you all. Yes. No, you're all fantastic. <laughs> Is there a correlation between increasing human population density and megafauna extinction rates, or is it an accepted assumption that they are related? Uh, they are definitely related sometimes. Yep. There are definitely cases where human population increases in a certain area, and we see a responding decrease in megafauna, uh, particularly in the past, uh, toward the end of the, of the Pleistocene. It's not always a clear signal. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, here in North America, there's been lots of discussion back and forth about whether or not the extinction of various megafauna is line, lines up in time with when humans arrive. Yep. Whereas for islands, it is often extremely well correlated uh, and then places like Australia, where there's been some back and forth, and places like Africa, it varies place to place, but there is a correlation in some instances where 
more humans means less big animals. That's the reason there's a debate as to whether or not we're responsible, because so often we do see a similar pattern show up, but we haven't for sure nailed down that they related. Right. And this is very much like the punctuated equilibrium situation where it is often framed as did megafauna go extinct because of humans or because of environmental conditions? And more realistically, it's in which circumstances was it more this or more yeah. that cause? Because of course we affected. Yes. Like if we move into a new place, any animal that moves into a new place and then is successful there is going to have an impact on the animals around it. Yep. Whether or not we were the main impact. And on the- this continent versus that yeah. area. So, yeah, it varies. Dr. J asks, are there things you can think of that will fossilize more or less often due to the changes humans have made to our planet? This was inspired by the dead mouse in the corner of my parking lot that decomposed on asphalt and missed its chance of entering the fossil record. Very good point. And yeah, asphalt and... and Oh yeah, like a city yes. is a terrible place for fossilization to occur. Absolutely. And in places where, you know, even like farmland... Mm-hmm. You know, where we are constantly tilling and and uprooting and moving the soil around, there's not going to be a lot of chance for things to get buried and then stay buried for very long. Uh, also, there are situations like reefs where reef ecosystems tend to be good places for fossil for deposits uh, to collect fossil material. But as we wipe out reefs, some of those conditions are no longer present. And some of the animals that would be living in those shallow oceans can't live there now because there's no reef there. Yes. On the other hand, uh, there are definitely some places where human activity has wiped out some of the predators or scavengers that would be clearing up carcasses. Mm-hmm. So certain Carcasses might be left out longer and thus have a better chance of getting buried in something. Yeah. We also, and you know, this is one of those where we're getting into a much more speculative human future, but we also have huge collections of animal remains. This is true. In a lot of places, museums and zoos, zoos. and places where if something were to happen that preserved that area, you know, if, if a museum gets buried in a landslide. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot of great fossils. <laughs> that's a lot of fossils that could remain. <laughs> now, uh, f- actually, we have done there. There is already some of this kind of thing because some of the best records of domesticated animals in the archaeological record or pets are found in human settlements or even in grave sites. Mm-hmm. Like, yep, yep. I think the earliest, I think the earliest known cats in the archaeological record are in graves. Yeah. Because we intentionally buried those cats or we have dogs that are like that. Yes. Where we are actively putting those things into the dirt and, and entering them into the geologic record. So you'll probably in, in with future paleontologists would see a huge spike in Human fossils, yep. not only because our population spiked, but because we... We bury each other. <laughs> we're burying ourselves. <laughs> so it would probably be a, a inordinate, a, a, un, a unusually high spike because mm-hmm. of that. And then some animals are going to be more or less fossilizable just because they become more or less common. Yes. Like chickens are way more fossilizable now than they would have been before just because they're everywhere. Yep. Rats. Yep, absolutely. Whereas, you know, chestnut trees <laughs> are going to have a much harder time just because there's 
not as many of them around. Yes, precisely. Next up, Nix asks, what is the fossil history of fungi, specifically mushrooms? Is it minimal or are there any special, are there any of special importance? Uh, good question. It is minimal and there are some of special importance. Uh, not a great fossil record for fungi, uh, partially because they don't. They are not the kind of thing that fossilizes quite as well as seeds and bones and teeth. Yeah, they're pretty soft. Also, they don't get studied very much. There's not a ton of research attention paid to fungi in the fossil record. Uh, but you can get them. You can get fungal spores. You can get uh, a gray. Uh, there's been research that's identified bits of fungal tissue. Bit microscopic, you know. Uh, they were discovered during pollen studies. Yes, yes. Uh, there are famous fungal remains from... Ooh, when was this? What was this? The Carboniferous? Some some one of those times, Prototaxites, the, the, the big, tall, fungus, mushroom things. Yep, yep. Uh, so there are interesting fungal fossils, uh, but it is a very scarce record. Uh, like the, the fossil fungi dis, uh, described at Gray, I think ha there were four different taxa, and I think at least half of them were the first time that this group of fungi has ever been found in North America, which that's true for a bunch of things at Gray. But also, there's just not a ton of published record for fossil fungi. So oftentimes, it is the first thing that has been found in this area. Which is very cool. Yeah. So cool, cool group of life. Not not a ton of fossils. Jade asks, what was your favorite episode this year? I'd probably have to say, I think the third to last episode of Andor. <laughs> that was really it's, good. That's That was... No, that was a very, that was a really good one. Yeah. Um, the, the episode of She-Hulk where they brought in, I don't want to spoil it yeah, if anyone yeah. hasn't watched it, but that's, but that, that yeah. character. Yes. That was awesome. That, that was, was fantastic. Really, I was really happy about that. If you meant the podcast. I don't listen to that. <laughs> um, what are some of the good ones that came out this year? I had a lot of fun with Ants. Ants was fun. The Moon came out this year. The Moon was And I know you really fun. you really liked the Moon episode. That that that's probably mine just cuz it's <laughs> had you asked me at the very beginning I wouldn't have thought I would have gotten to do it. Yes. Uh and it was a ton of fun and the the through line theme of it I really was glad we got to talk about. Like, yeah. So, yeah, that's probably mine. Uh, Sanguivores was great. Oh, yeah, I that was good. I really liked Sanguivores. I really liked Gliders. Yep. Uh, I also really liked our Gymnosperms episode. Yeah. With Allie. That was a ton of fun. That, that's probably one of my favorite of the plant episodes. Yes. I really liked that one. Yes. Some good episodes. Travis would like to know, do either of you read paleontology and earth science nonfiction books in your leisure time? Uh, sometimes. Nope. Not not as often as I used to, because as we've discussed uh, other times, now it's now it's the job. Mm -hmm. So I get plenty of reading for of paleontology stuff for the podcast or for my job. So in my leisure time, I want to read comic books yep. and you know, watch movies and stuff. Uh, but occasionally. So like uh, I listened to Riley's book recently. That was leisure. That's the most recent example like, I don't, these days especially, I don't do a lot outside of work time. I pretty much, as I, as I'm sure has come across to all of you lovely people uh, listening and following <laughs> us, uh, I'm not a big book person. Mm -hmm. I just, they, they don't typically hold my attention. And there so, aren't even any pictures. There aren't even pictures. <laughs> and I, I, 
probably have some mild case of dyslexia. So unless it's really interesting, it's a struggle. It takes me a while to read a chapter book. Mm -hmm. So unless I really like it, it's not worth the effort. So a nonfiction book has never even pinged (laughs) my radar. Documentaries. Yeah. Documentaries. Documentaries. I'll read Wikipedia entries and like Uh, news articles and science articles online. I've never seen once in my life read a nonfiction book. (laughs) (laughs) I have. When I was in college, I used to read not and in high school, I used to read nonfiction a bunch, Uh, but less so as it's become something I need to do. Yep. (laughs) Next up, two questions. Nathan asks, what is your favorite D&D class to play? And John asks, can you tell us about your favorite D&D characters or classes that you've played? Happily. Yeah. I. It's hard for me to pick my favorite class because I've been making an effort over the last few years to slowly play through all the classes. Yeah. And I shift. Like, if you ask me every few months, mm-hmm. a different class is the one I would most be interested in playing. Whatever's been on your mind. Yep. Uh, I really like utility classes. So mm-hmm. that those are the ones that typically let you do a whole bunch of stuff in different kinds of useful things instead of being good at just one or two things. Uh, even if, like rogues, where the things they're good at are pretty specific, you know, sneaking and lockpicking and, you know, lying maybe or something like that. But I can do a bunch with that. Right. Like, I prefer to play a character that's like that than one that hits really hard in combat because I like I like the role play of me being able to use my stuff to do creative things in the game yeah recently i've been very enamored by paladin and warlock as classes because i like the idea of a character who is guided specifically by their ties to some powerful entity somewhere in the world to have rules i like a character that's not making all of their own choices that's a very fun role play starting point well they they have driving things outside of themselves yes that directly affects them as far as characters, um, I do have a paladin character mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I've actually. So I played Chef yep. in our game with Josh, uh, which we didn't play for very long. But I, I really did. I like Chef. That's a cool. Chef uh, is a cleric, but is very paladin sort of flavored. Flavored. <laughs> and my character Swell, who is a paladin, mm-hmm. uh, who is a, a a paladin trying their best <laughs> to be the good version of a paladin. Uh, and mostly succeeding. Yes. <laughs> uh, I've had I've had a bunch of characters. Some of my favorites uh, in with Sheth, I got to play uh, Syntec, mm-hmm. who was a gnome artificer, which I like. I knew I was going to have fun because it's uh, it's the one sciency yeah. type class. Artificer so fun. Yeah. But I didn't realize how much fun I was going to have because they give you all the tool sets. And I went, oh. I can take apart and rebuild the world. (laughs) And so Josh very quickly got used to me going, what is the door made out of? (laughs) How many pieces would you say it is? How much much lumber are we talking? (laughs) I know what I can make out of that. (laughs) Um, Currently in one of our games, I'm playing uh, a warlock who didn't know he was a warlock, didn't know he had made a pact. And thought he was a wizard until yeah. things started getting weird. And that's been very fun. And I have the a joy of playing that character's patron. Yes. Who that character does not know. Mm-hmm. Which is wonderful. So, yeah, I, I like playing those. I like also playing s- characters with non-adventure motivations. Mm-hmm. Who, are, who are here 
not because of the adventure. And so their priorities don't line up with the typical adventure mode. Like they're like, yeah, sure. Gold, gold, whatever. But like, you know, what do they have to eat around here? Yep. I like playing characters <laughs> like that. I like that. I like uh, fun role play opportunities. I, I one of my favorite things to do with a character is to have character personality traits built into the mechanics. Yes. Uh, Swell, my paladin, has that a bit where Swell can fight one-handed or two-handed, mm-hmm. but it's harder two-handed, but you get more attacks, so it's a very reckless uh, attempt. My favorite example is with a character I played in Will's Star Wars game, yeah. which was a Star Wars D&D game, named Dino, and Dino was rogue, th- that game's version of a rogue, and Dino is this fast-talking deceptive, tricky, uh, uh, done-with-the-world kind of character. And my favorite thing about Dino is because of his combination of specialties, Dino has a negative one modifier to charisma skills, to persuasion and intimidation, but a plus five to deception. (laughs) It actually, Dino is several times less likely to succeed if he tries to be honest with people. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I love I love that as a character setup. It's like you are better off lying regardless of who you're talking to, because trying to be nice is almost certainly going to fail. Yep. But you're really, really good at lying. Yes. I love that. I love and, that kind of thing. And that stuff is fun. My uh, I played the uh, a changeling character yeah. whose class was morph, which our friend Josh also made a custom class that I was playing and his whole thing was that he could shift into animals like wild shape, but without any of the magic of druids Mm -hmm. and then was a changeling. So I could turn into an animal or a person at will basically whenever. And I loved that so much because I could just walk into every building and go, all right, who am I for these people? Yes. I wanted it to be that when this character visited a town and if the shops across the street talked to each other, they would have different people. Mm-hmm. So no one could have tracked my character from one place to the other <laughs> because they have an old woman that they met and yep. they had a little girl that they met. <laughs> and I remember you saying that it was such an interesting character to play because that character knows that at any time yep. they can disappear. Yes. Like they don't need to be here. They can leave with no repercussions and just walk away. Yeah, I, he didn't have any sense of consequences because I can just disappear from this town within this town. Yep. <laughs> like Mystique. Yes. Next up, Drew says the ninth generation Pokemon introduced a fire crocodile starter. Fire starters up to this point have followed a pattern of the Chinese Zodiac, considering that they used an echidna for the rat and a fox for the dog. Can you make a claim that the fire crocodile either does or does not continue this pattern? Could the crocodile represent the snake? Ah, so this is there is this longstanding fan theory with Pokemon that the starter, the fire type starter Pokemon follow the pattern of the Chinese Zodiac. They are based on, or at least inspired by, the animals from the Chinese Zodiac. Uh, short answer is, uh, I do not think you can make the case that Fue Coco, as a crocodile line, fits any of the animals in the Chinese Zodiac. Nope. And also, I don't think the Chinese Zodiac pattern is actually a thing. No. In the starters. At least not the way uh, that people tend to frame it. I, I don't think that the people in the, the design studio are strictly following 
a set of Chinese zodiac rules. Yeah, well, when they and, come up with a new fire starter, and I it's it's really interesting because I I you you can see where it comes from. The eight times out of eight, mm-hmm. the fire starter has been based on an animal that is reasonably close to something from the Chinese zodiac. And the grass and water starters are very commonly not things that are close to the Chinese zodiac, like frogs and turtles and owls and sauropods and Bulbasaur. <laughs> so there's this pattern where, like, what what is it about the fire starters that every one of them seems to have a correlate on the list of animals that are on the Chinese zodiac uh, up until Fue Coco, which is very much not uh, any of those. And I've never bought into that fan theory, mainly for two reasons. One, that as far as I'm aware, it has never been acknowledged by the Pokemon company. Yeah. Like there's no, it's always just been a fan theory. It's never been a thing that uh, they've acknowledged or supported uh, in any official capacity, uh, which becomes odder and odder the longer the Pokemon franchise goes on. But also remember again, uh, the thing that you could talk about at length uh, Mm -hmm. uh, on a moment's notice I think there's something even more interesting going on because I totally agree that it is conspicuous and interesting that eight out of eight of the first eight Pokemon fire starters seem to match something on the Chinese Zodiac. I think it is even more interesting that that is true for most fire type Pokemon. Yeah. If you look at the full list of fire type Pokemon, especially if you ignore the ones that aren't based on animals, <laughs> like Litwick, which is a candle and Charcadet, which is a little person. If you just look at the ones that are based on animals, almost all of them match something on the list of Chinese Zodiac animals Yeah, about as well as the starters do, which I think is super cool. I suspect that what's happening here is that the creators of Pokemon have an idea in their head of what animals fit the fire type. Yes. And that idea happens to overlap a lot with the list of mostly domesticated animals that is on the Chinese Zodiac. So much how birds very often end up being flying types and fish very often end up being the inspiration for water types. Something about the animals that are on the Chinese Zodiac matches what the creators have in mind for uh, fire type Pokemon. Yeah, there might be a similar mentality in the choice of animals between Pokemon creators and whoever came up with the Chinese Zodiac whenever that was yes. come up with. <laughs> uh, so no, Fue Coco does not fit the Chinese Zodiac pattern for the same way that Torkoal doesn't fit because they're a little bit off for fire Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit unusual. <laughs> Morg asks, what's your favorite type of extinct or extant South American animal? Hmm... My favorite extinct South American animal is probably Perosaurus. That's what I would have guessed. Because that's a giant caiman with just a big old suitcase of a face. It also happens that Titanoboa is also an extinct South American animal. So that's that's a hard one to pass up on. And there's lots of other cool ones. There's tons of interesting South American animals, but... Those two are hard to top. Those are pretty great. Also, ground slots and glyptodonts. And like, yep. There's a lot of cool stuff in the fossil record of South America, but it also has a ton of great crocs and snakes. So sorry, everybody else. And, and if we were relegated to extant ones, then, I mean, still. Dude, crocs and snakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Nisarg asks, 
Who is your favorite paleontologist and why? Hmm. Why my good friend Will, of course. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. All I'm right. Um, I don't fan over paleontologists. No, I like like I don't have like a celebrity fave. Yeah. Among paleontologists or even like a research like a uh, role model mm-hmm. kind of thing. I don't do that for celebrities of any no. uh, realm. And so like all the one all the names that come to mind for me is like Laura. Yeah, like our friends. <laughs> yeah. Those are my favorite paleontologists. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Uh Tom Holtz is a super cool guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and I are friends online and we wish each other a happy birthday every year. Uh Trevor Valley. <laughs> Trevor Valley. Oh yeah, Trevor, who yeah. we worked with at uh at DragonCon. That Trevor very cool paleontologist. Yeah, Allie. You mentioned Allie, which is... Yep. Uh, yeah, we absolutely should mention Allie. Yes. Yeah, and f- from a paleontologist perspective, she might be earn the right of favorite because she's helped us with the podcast so much. Right. <laughs> uh, certainly my favorite paleobotanist. Yes. Absolutely. 100%. No, no contest. Sorry, Ellie Sattler. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, Ellie Sattler. No, forget it. Sorry, Allie. You're out. <laughs> Laura Dern is in. <laughs> Cheryl asks, does it make sense to say that there are model organisms that are used in paleontological research? How are limitations addressed? Uh, yes, there are definitely model organisms uh, for numerous reasons. It may that be that they have a very good fossil record, so mm-hmm. we have a lot of info to work with, so they give us more points of view on a topic than other groups typically would. Yep. Uh, it also could be that they display something particularly well. Yep. You know, th- this one thing, you know, their teeth fossilize really well. So if you're wanting to s- right. test how chemical things react to teeth, their teeth are going to be or something right. to that or they, effect. Or they have a good growth series. Yes, So exactly. we can study uh, reproduction or development. Uh, T-Rex has been referred to as a model organism in the fossil record. Yes. That it just it's we've got a great fossil record of them. Tons of research is done, so they are often the go-to for questions about dinosaur, uh, in dinosaur research. And I think the, one of the biggest advantages, and sometimes what will happen, is just that if you have an organism with a good record, lots of research is going to be done. So when you come up with a new idea, you already have all that data. Mm-hmm. All that research has already been done. It's not that you couldn't potentially get that same information from another organism. Like, there might be another theropod that nowadays is as fossiliferous as T-Rex. Mm-hmm. But if it was discovered only you know 20 years ago or something, then we just haven't had the decades of research that T-Rex has built up. Yeah. So the, the history also makes a big deal. As far as limitations, just keeping in mind the normal limitations of the fossil record, yeah. that a model modern organism is always going to give us more information than a model fossil organism, uh, being aware of where we're missing things and, and what the biases in the fossil record are mm-hmm. that shape what kind of specimens we have access to. It's also important, and this this is something that the researchers are very often going to be aware of, but that the public presentation of that research often will get skewed on is that you can get biased by that model organism, mm-hmm. assuming that if it was true for T-Rex, it's true for dinosaurs. Right. But T-Rex was a weird dinosaur. Like It was a very unique dinosaur. There might be things about it that don't apply to anyone else. Yes. <laughs> so 
just because we have a useful model organism doesn't mean we can rely on it 100%. We have to take into consideration that it's still different yep. from other organisms. Josh and Maria ask, what is the evolutionary history of menstruation? Any evidence for when that became a thing? A uh, very good question. Mm -hmm. I don't know a ton of details about the history of menstruation. I do know that it is something that is seen in numerous different mammals, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in different lineages of mammals. So it seems to have menstruation, uh, like in humans, or at least very similar to in humans, has evolved multiple times. Yeah. And I know that there are a number of primate species closely related to us that also menstruate, that also exhibit menstruation like humans do. So it seems like it probably evolved a ways back in our branch of the primate family tree. So probably several million years back. Mm -hmm. uh, but other beyond that, I don't know very much about what has been studied into the evolutionary history of menstruation or really mammal reproductive cycles yeah. uh, in, in the broader sense. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you have the whole history of however lo how long placentas have been around, but mm -hmm. I don't know where you would be able to start suggesting suggesting of like, well, these lineages both show it and they branched this far back. So maybe right, it's right. a shared thing from then. That's though how we would have to go about it. Yeah. And that's what I was just doing yeah. is here's what we have today. Here's how many times it likely evolved or here's how far back it goes. Yeah. Our uh, evidence but, is going to come from the modern working backwards. Uh, there is almost certainly more information available out there than I happen to know. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure there's fascinating studies that have been done on it. Jackie asks, has there ever been a topic you chose for an episode and had to scrap after you started researching it? And if so, why? Uh, there definitely have been ones we've switched what the episode was going to be. Right. Yeah, there have been some that have gone in a different direction. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've ever started researching a topic and then said, no, no, this won't work. Yes. I think that we've Definitely had cases where we'll start researching and go, oh, this is going to be more about this topic than I realized. Yep. Or I thought I was going to talk a bunch about this, but that's actually a pretty small section of this. So instead, it's going to be this thing. Yeah, it's really going to be more this kind of episode than this kind. Mm -hmm. And that'll often happen with the the weirder topics. Like, I feel like that happened to us with when I did symbiosis, that we, we were starting thinking it would be covering one set of topics and then real really realize that's too much. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember what it was that we initially started with, but I feel like I remember that happening that we switched. Yeah. Yeah. After we picked that one and started well, working on it and then went, mm, and that mm -hmm. happened with mimicry too, yes. where it was, we have to really narrow down what this is about. Yes. That might be what I'm thinking <laughs> of is mimicry versus camouflage. Yes. Yeah, yeah. How, how broadly are we exploring the concept of mimicry? Are we including camouflage? Are we excluding camouflage specifically? So that has definitely happened, but I don't think we've ever just scrapped a thing partway through research. Yeah, not that I can uh, think of. Because we're good at choosing topics. <laughs> <laughs> Piero asks, do you think the giant penguins from the Eocene could be ecologically equivalent to ichthyosaurs? Hmm, that's maybe. A, that's a really good question. They certainly would have uh, been eating similar things to what ichthyosaurs are thought to have eaten. You know, small fish and squids and stuff are often interpreted for ichthyosaurs. 
Uh, so yeah, not the biggest ichthyosaurs, of course, but no. like human-sized ichthyosaurs, potentially. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a gap, uh, so the giant penguins would not have taken over for ichthyosaurs. Yes. Because ichthyosaurs disappeared earlier in the Cretaceous, and giant penguins don't show up until a ways into the Cenozoic. So it's not like they came in and stepped directly into the niche, but they probably had a lot of similarities. Yeah. Intriguing idea. Kylie asks, Kylie asks, what does the process look like for your freelance writing for articles on research studies? Ooh. Oh, that's a thing I do. How does it look? Um, My freelance writing has varied. So for a while, I was on contract with a particular news organization, in which case I would often be given things to write. And my, my, and my editor would say, here's a thing, please write about this. That is also how it happens uh, oftentimes with SciShow, especially with news. So with SciShow, I would write scripts, and sometimes I could suggest a topic, sometimes they'd give me a topic, but I did a bunch of SciShow news episodes, and those would be oftentimes the editor said, here is the news we'd like to do. Uh, so the process in those cases is that I became one of the regular writers by applying, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then they would reach out to me. This is also, I also write press releases and it's the same thing is that I am on their list of keep me engaged by giving me stuff to write every now and then. Uh, and they'll send me an email and say, please write about this. Uh, I've done freelance writing where I'm pitching stories where I'll reach out and say, here is a news story I'd like to write about. Uh, I did less of that only because most news sites, uh, at least from what I've, I interacted with already are keeping on top of the news and know what kind of news they want to write about. The few times that I would really be pitching new research stories was when I would go to SVP. Yeah. And I was getting in, getting the scoop, right? Getting in early and saying, this isn't published yet. It will be soon. Would you like me to write about this? Uh, so yeah, so it, it has varied quite a bit. Neat. Next Eric says, a time portal opens in the freezer section of your local grocery store. What ancient <laughs> organisms are on your shopping list? Parentheses, grab me a box of trilobites and some pterodactyl fingers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Who would I want to eat? I'm a big fan. Here's the thing about me. I really enjoy the handful of times that I have gotten to go to some sort of event and purchase a turkey leg yeah. and just walk around the event chowing on a turkey leg. Yes. So it stands to reason that dinosaurs, bigger dinosaurs would have had epic drumsticks. Yeah. I want like, I don't, I'm not going to order an Allosaurus or something. I need to be able to carry it. Yes. But like a big Dromaeosaur and just a giant drumstick <laughs> chowing down on that. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. I feel like, because uh, uh, I, I like shrimp and crab. There's mm -hmm. got to be some weird crustaceans and arthropods. Oh, sure. Like some odd sea buggies that would that would boil up well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, seafood. Yeah. Ancient seafood would be would be quite good. Delicious. <laughs> Rick asks, are you all able to make a decent living doing this? Uh, for paleontology? Yeah, for the podcast, decent. We're getting there. Getting there. We're working on it. Uh, I'm currently able to work full time, but we're not able to quite fund both of us mm -hmm. to work on the podcast as our, as our hourly rate. Uh, but... No, I am not having to 
count the calories in every meal I eat. I'm, I'm <laughs> right, able right, to right. eat and be, and be comfortable. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, in part, it is certainly uh, uh, lucrative enough. Yes. It, it can be self-sustaining. Yes. Next, Grace. What do you think about people falling asleep to your podcasts? I find your stuff super interesting and relaxing. Perfect to wind down and sleep. I, you know, we have, I remember the first time somebody said, I use your podcast to fall asleep. And my reaction was, A, should I be insulted by that? Yeah. Uh, and B, no, of course not. Uh, but that's very funny. Yes. We have gotten so many people who have told us that. Yeah. That they use our podcast to fall asleep too. And I think that is hilarious. I, yeah, no, I get it. I totally get it. I, I feel the same <laughs> way when I'll watch YouTube videos every now and then of like people playing a video game. And then I'll realize like, I haven't watched them play any of this game because <laughs> I'm doing something else on my computer. I'm just listening to them talk, not even about the game, just talk while they play the game. And it's I'm just you're you're effectively being just very pleasant noise yep. for me to listen to. And hey. That's great. I Let's, get it. <laughs> we are happy to be part of your day-to-day -day experience. Yes. Uh, that's that's awesome. We we like helping people. Mm -hmm. And what we set out to do was to educate and engage and interest people. But if uh, one of the other things we're doing unintentionally is helping you to get a good night's sleep, then awesome. I appreciate that so much because I am <laughs> terrible at getting to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've never really been in the habit of listening to stuff to go to sleep no. because that will keep me awake. Yes, I get too focused on it. I can't zone out while I'm yes. listening. I'll read to go to sleep mm -hmm. because reading will put me to sleep, which is part of why I don't read as much these days because <laughs> I've become old. <laughs> Lydia asks, if you could only watch movies and shows from one fandom for the rest of your life, which one would it be? I mean, I know what my answer to that question is. Hmm. Hmm. One fandom for the rest. I mean, I know MCU. That's my answer. Is where you are. And, and MCU is a very good choice. And not, not even because the Marvel Cinematic Universe is necessarily my favorite thing ever, but because if that's the only thing I can ever watch, I will be sated. Yes. Because they're putting out three movies a year and multiple TV shows a year. And it's only a matter of time before there's just a new Marvel thing every week. Yep. And then I have stuff to watch forever. Yep. And that that is. And if I get to say Marvel broadly, then <laughs> absolutely. Marvel just on a whole. Uh, yeah, I'm good forever. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. If, if I can pick that like in the modern, that's definitely the case. But like nostalgically, Star Wars is so such a big. But yeah. like. As much... Thank goodness all their stuff is good. Yeah. As they've just had such a consistent track record <laughs> for the last number of years. And so, yeah, I'm, I am I am torn between my two great loves. Yeah. I'm going to be... <laughs> listen, X-Men are coming up. Um, I'm going to be great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, good point. X-Men. If, if they come out with another Andor, then, then I might swing back over. But for right now, Marvel for X-Men. <laughs> Frederick... Asks, have we bred more chickens than there were archosaurs? If not, <laughs> when will we have done so? <laughs> have have we created more chickens than the history of archosaurs? Uh, almost certainly not. No, no, for sure not. Uh, I did look it up, and and actually, I think the the Frederick included in this question uh, that there's statistics for like we eat 
50 billion chickens a year. Yeah. Like uh, globally, which is a preposterous amount of chickens. Yep. That is ridiculous. But there would have been billions of each species of dinosaur alone over hundreds of millions of years. Like those numbers are are unfathomable. You're also competing chickens against all other birds. Yes, which if are, we're including archosaurs. Yep, which are also <laughs> super, super numerous. Yes, and that's not even to mention all the croc line mm-hmm. stuff and pterosaurs. Yeah, yep. which were very so. Yeah, like a healthy worldwide population of one species of pterosaur or dinosaur or bird could be thousands to millions of individuals, and over many millions of years, that is many billions for each species. Yes. So yeah, we have not quite, uh, not nearly. Uh, done that. We have almost certainly bred more chickens than there were individuals of many species. Oh, yeah. Specific species of, of ancient archosaurs. Yeah, no, for sure. Oh, man, that's that's a fun math problem. <laughs> Someone will have fun with the math. And when will we? No clue. No, yeah, who knows? When we, we expand to an intergalactic chicken breeding. Yes, once uh, we make chickens <laughs> enterprise. breeding on multiple planets... So that now the other archosaurs can't compete at the same <laughs> planetary scale. Lachette asks, I am absolutely obsessed with the Ediacaran and Cambrian periods, and I want to absorb everything about them. What are some recommendations? And also, how can I get into researching the periods? Ooh, uh, as far as researching them, there are places where the, the, the departments or the fossil sites nearby are going to be focusing on these right. periods. Like, I think the Royal Ontario Museum is where a lot of the central information is housed for the Burgess Shale. Yep, yep. Uh, which is, of course, the famous Cambrian site. And that's generally, if you're wanting to study something specific in paleontology, you find the paleontologists who are studying that, and that's where you go. Yes. Uh, like, if, if you come here to ETSU, when I came here and I mentioned, it's like, I do like dinosaurs. They're like, cool, well, that's not... Not here. Not here. <laughs> we don't have any. We don't have any, and we don't have anyone who research, like, even has a history of researching dinosaurs. So that is just not an option for focus here. So you go to where those specialists are. Yeah. Also, if you go Google scholaring and see who are the scientists that are publishing interesting research on these uh, time periods and topics... And then finding out who are their colleagues and where do they work and what labs are they associated with and just sort of put connect the dots of the Ediacaran and Cambrian paleontological communities. Yes. Uh, as far as recommendations uh, for, like, getting more info, I don't have any, like, specific books yeah. or, or documentaries the, or things. The ROM has a whole section of their museum website for the Burgess Shale. Yeah. Uh, honestly, and this is very self-serving, but... Episode 89 and episode 31, the blog posts have a bunch of links in them for more information about Burgess Shale and about uh, 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 the Ediacaran. Also, the Cambrian Explosion, mm-hmm, episode mm-hmm. 9. Yeah, those would be... So we <laughs> Back when we did those episodes, we knew more references yes. and recommendations than we remember right now. That's exactly what I was going to say. Go back <laughs> to when we had recommendations for you. <laughs> I have now forgotten. Yes. Next, Jeff says the latest pandemic has really opened my eyes to how profound an effect evolution currently has on our human population. Other than our immune systems, what would you say are the areas of our lives where selection where selection pressures are the greatest from an evolution standpoint? 
Ooh, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, immune system for sure. Yes. That is absolutely a, a, a very good one. Um, I would bet on a similar note that there are pr- uh, rapidly changing selective pressures for our microbiomes. Yes. I was going to say diet, which is in a very yeah. similar vein to that. And I know there's been research into how sort of industrialization affects uh, our microbe communities inside of our bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, other than that, a lot of the things, because you know, there's tons of different you know books and, and, and shows and stuff that I've seen that have put forth what humans might look like in the future. And the truth is that our physical attributes aren't under a lot of selective pressure just because we're not we're, we're not usually dying because we can't outrun something mm-hmm. and things like that. So that's not I don't think a lot of those things are going to be under a bunch of pressure to change even in a very long time for humans. Yeah. Uh, so. so I don't know what else. Immune, immune, all the microbial stuff. Yes. Like that, that seems like it's it's probably being impacted pretty dramatically. And even that, as we get learn more and more and start to curate our, our medical experience. Yeah, we might slow that down. Oh, yeah. Uh, at which point it might become cultural yes. uh, evolution far more dramatically than physical evolution. And so you still could see major shifts, but it may be things that we're doing on purpose. Mm-hmm. Nathan says... I just listened to your silver screen science on prehistoric planet lamenting the lack of backing science. Would you consider recording your own voiceover for the series that people could listen to? Uh, An interesting idea. I would say no, (laughs) that we would not do that. Partially uh, because uh, that seems like a lot of work, (laughs) Uh, but mostly because that would seem like a very rude thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to say, here's our voiceover. Forget that David Attenborough guy. Here's our better voiceover for this show. I would not. I would not want to do that. Yeah. And and be so ambitious as to say that we would come up with a better narration narration for the show than what already exists. Uh, I would be willing to do something more along the lines of like. A commentary. Yeah, like an MST3K. Yes, exactly. Like, but nice. Yeah. <laughs> but not making fun of a it. A constructive or, or, or you know, even if critical, but, mm-hmm. you know, analytical from, uh, from a point of science to where you know, put the subtitles on for David Attenborough and then play this audio. I'd right, be like a director's commentary. Yeah. Just our thoughts and basically silver screen yes, science. But in real time, because mm-hmm. then we would be able to say where we appreciate things and what we're enjoying, but also th- this is one we would have, it would have been nice to have a little more explanation or a mm-hmm. little more clarification here. And just that a, a, a feature length review. Yes. Of the thing. And that could be pretty fun. Yeah. Sam asks, what did you think of Andor? If you haven't watched <laughs> it, I strongly recommend it. Uh, yeah. As we have alluded to a couple <laughs> of times, because we just watched it. Yep. It was awesome. Yeah. I loved it. So much. I I don't know that I'd say it's my favorite Star Wars thing because there's definitely other Star Wars stuff that I'm more nostalgic about. Sure, sure. And it's probably the, it's uh, we just I think recently or currently or sometime very close to this recording is the five year anniversary of Last Jedi. Yeah, I saw people talking about yeah. online. And so like there's I I don't know that I would say it's my favorite. I do think personally I think it is the strongest Star Wars content, like from a writing and acting and story structure and filming perspective, like just a piece of cinema, a piece of 
on-screen content, I think mm-hmm. it is the strongest story Star Wars has ever told. Andor is super good. Uh, we second Sam's recommendation. If you like Star Wars, and honestly, even if you only kind of like Star Wars, yep. uh, Andor was great. If you like sci-fi drama, yeah, <laughs> I would suggest it. Yes. <laughs> huge, huge, huge fan. Saul asks, what does the evidence say about the diet of our hominid ancestors and how it changed for our species? Ooh, I don't I, I don't know specifics, of course. Yeah, I know there's been a bunch of discussion about the role of carnivory. Yes, that's what I was about to say. In, the, in our lineage's evolutionary history. We do have uh, uh, thoughts and some supporting evidence that when we started including more meat into our diet, it did have a significant effect on our behavior, but also our anatomy. Right. But that has also gone back and forth quite mm-hmm. a bit with other researchers questioning whether or not that was something new to our species or whether that actually our lineage has been eating meat more widely and for a longer time. There have been times where it's been purported as like we started eating meat and then our brains got gigantic and everything got better. But it's probably not that clear cut. Yeah, almost surely. There may be uh, uh, some correlations to our behavior and our lifestyle and diet, but uh, uh, certainly under investigation. Yeah, we definitely can make some inferences about what diets we could have just because our jaw does significantly change and get weaker, you know, less of a a strong bite to it Mm -hmm. as time goes along. So there's definitely things that we couldn't have eaten as easily as our ancestors probably were. Yeah. There's also been studies into how cooking affected our evolution. And that's another one where we don't quite know when that started. Yes. Which makes it hard to draw a direct correlation to what it did for our evolutionary story. Yeah. Did we get weaker jaws because we started making our food softer to eat by cooking and processing it? Or did we start cooking (laughs) after our jaws already got weaker for some other reason? Right. And, And all sorts of other potential correlations yeah so there's so, there's a yeah. lot people are looking into it with intensity <laughs> yes top people but it is definitely still a debate in many categories danielle and henry ask what book would you recommend for good paleo art Ooh, uh we always like to talk about all yesterdays all yesterdays is great very fun book uh, we also both have that coffee table book dinosaur art dinosaur art um, all of our recommendations for these are becoming outdated, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's better books for paleo art. Yeah, <laughs> I had a, a Dinosaurs, a Global View was one of the first big books full of uh, scientific paleo art that I got as a kid. But that was before we knew what Therizinosaurus and Dinoceruses, Dinochirus bodies mm-hmm. look like. It has a section all about like, look at these giant predatory arms. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> also, if you want fantasy, Dinotopia. Oh, yeah. That's great fantasy paleo art. Jess asks, is there a certain fossil specimen you want to one day see in person? For example, I dream of traveling to Germany and seeing the famous Berlin Archaeopteryx. Ooh, I've still not ever seen Sue. Same. Hmm? I'd love to go to the Field Museum and see Sue. I'd love to go see the Berlin Archaeopteryx. Yep. Absolutely. That'd be super cool. There's also, I think Berlin is where they have the big Brachiosaur display. That is very exciting. Mm-hmm. I also, uh, Ash Falls. Oh, yeah. Uh, getting to see that in person would be very... Like, I've seen pictures, and I've seen, di- like, film of people walking between the bodies and everything, but yep. getting to see that in person would be surreal. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a there's a bunch of cool specimens. Next question from Christina. 
If you could bring back the fresh body of one animal from the past, what would it be and why? Oh, man. I, I'm always, I, I, I am uh, filled with guilt that my go-to answer for so many of these questions is dinosaurs. Yep. But like, no, but a sauropod. A sauropod. I, I, absolutely. I want to bring back a sauropod. A sauropod. What did you look like? What were you doing just to stand next to it? Mm-hmm. Even the dead version? Yep. Just to stand next to the carcass? Yep. Just, huh. Oh, no. Megalodon. Ooh. That would yeah. be very cool. Because we have so little of that. Yeah. Like. Well, yeah, that's the other direction. Yeah, I was going to say, as far as bang for your buck. Yeah. Megalodon oh, yeah, well, is about the most for how little we have versus how much <laughs> you'd get from a fresh body. Well, and uh, <laughs> anything Cambrian. Yep. Like any of the stuff that we only have bits and pieces of. But I mean of, pound for pound. I mean, that's that's fair. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the biggest cartilaginous fish. <laughs> so. Ooh, uh. Cody says. If you had the technology to do some sort of scan of the Earth that collects all possible geologic and paleontological data at once, would you use it? For sure. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. Absolutely. Knowledge. Yes. Yes. Now, I'm sure there are avenues to this that you ha- that have to be asked of, are there ill ways to use that information once we've scanned? Right. Could, Is this responsible to share? What, would we reveal every oil field on, field on the planet? Right. And spark wars right. as is, nations go, is, <laughs> you say so-and-so has 12 untapped oil fields? Well, maybe we go vit like... Right. Is every cause... James Bond villain going to spawn at once? Yeah. Would we spawn international incidents? Are there th- other things that we would discover? You know, coal seams and, and mineral mines that would cause a sudden surgence of e- ecological exploitation? Yep. So from that point of view that... Then maybe we'd be careful yep. with it. But if it's just... For the scientific data, then absolutely. If we could um, omit those things, would we? Right. (laughs) And Uh, and at that point, are we being dishonest with the results we find from it? (laughs) Oh, ethics. I think that part of the uh, uh, thought perhaps behind this question or perhaps the expectations of some of our listeners is wouldn't that put you out of a job Mm -hmm. if you just have all the data? And the answer is it would it would put us out of some jobs. Yeah. But uh, now there's just tons more questions. Yeah, now we don't have to dig anymore. Now we don't even have to dig anymore. Except that we, of course, we would dig Mm -hmm. uh, because we'd have to go get them. Yes. Now now that we we know know where they are, (laughs) potential fossils are. We also would be able to comb through and study that data for generations. Oh yeah. As people, because because that's a unimaginable amount of data. We already have too much data. Yeah, like the literal entire planet's worth of (laughs) geological data. That is so much information that human civilization will probably never finish sifting oh, yeah. through. That's not even big the results data. of that scan. That's preposterous data. Yes. So, so yes. Yeah, and then there's because uh, I often wonder if it was the like, wouldn't that take out the the joy of hunting for? Right. Today, <laughs> These, you know? It removes the fun part. Yeah. If all answers are, if all questions are answered, then what's the point? And I, I I've never felt the fear of that. I always kind of been like, no, well, because that wouldn't answer all the questions. No. That would just give us tons of data to work with. And now, and you know, even if we do answer all the questions somehow, we now we can just tell stories and make movies and video games about. It. Like, <laughs> well, you go start asking other questions. You just make stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> so if you know something we don't know, Cody, you let us know. <laughs> Chris. Asks if you could find an exceptional fossil site from an underrepresented time or biome, what would it be and why? Ooh. 
For biome, I'm tempted to say like mountaintop mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. trench. Yep. You know, one of those that is rare to begin with and unlikely to be fossilizing very well in the first place. Uh, on a similar mentality, rainforest. Yep. Where things don't often fossilize well because the forest is turning it over. But also, if it did fossilize really well, you'd get just buku mm-hmm. species. So many species. Yeah. In terms of time period, I'm very... I mean, there are certain things like early Cretaceous. We don't know very well. Early Triassic could use some some really nice early sites. Yep. Uh, land environments during the Silurian... Devonian, so like some of those really earliest land ecosystems. But I, part of me is extremely tempted to say even earlier stuff. Yeah. And once again, the cheating answer, uh, can I cheat and say uh, where where the first life showed up? Yes, exactly. <laughs> can yeah. I get a, a, a Lagerstätten that is the first place on Earth that microbial life evolved? Do I have to give you a year or an event? Right. Erin <laughs> <laughs> asks... With the abundance of microplastics in the environment these days, is it possible that future fossils could be made of plastic? Ooh. Uh, there are already rocks made of plastic. Yes. That's a thing that has been documented of uh, of rocks forming and incorporating plastic into them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this was in Hawaii. They yep. saw like some kind of mineral or igneous rock, I think, that was incorporating plastic. Well, I know that there's been findings of uh, uh, this is a much more unnatural process but beach fires and plastic getting melted onto the sand of the beach mm-hmm. and forming into a very rock-esque like yeah that the final product is fairly sturdy i don't know if plastic could replace yeah fossil i don't know the chemical like, like, behavior if, you, if enough. you could get you know silicification mm-hmm. but plasticization uh, I don't know. I don't know if that would work. But Surely some version of plastic could do that. Yes. Uh, yeah, probably, especially in the various crazy chemical processes that happen deep within the earth. Mm-hmm. That once and, plastic and, is, and in our factories. Yeah, exactly. Once <laughs> plastic's broken down to a, its different parts, I'm sure some of those chemicals might do something. Yeah. But surely imprints and infills and stuff oh, like yeah. that could happen with plastic rich sediment so yeah we we sure could this is like there was an old uh, george carlin joke where he talks about that's what the earth needed us for mm-hmm. like, wanted plastic couldn't make it by itself yes. <laughs> that's our entire purpose here yep. on the earth yep once we've made enough it'll kill us off yep <laughs> next up drew says i have been listening for, to some of the older episodes lately and have wondered whether there have been developments that would make it worthwhile to refresh or update some of them if so which ones and in what manner? Yeah, we've we've thought about this mm-hmm. and we've been asked about this. Uh, it's tricky because there are always developments and updates happening. And I'll be honest, I don't want to go redo an episode. No. Um, but we've thought about the potential of sort of scooping up more recent things and, and putting out little here's a here's an add on mm-hmm. to an earlier episode topic. Uh, but that also kind of happens within the episodes anyway. Yes. When and we talk about news, news and when we will discuss similar topics later on. So the podcast kind of sort of does that naturally. Yeah. So we're not doing the Wikipedia style of revisiting and actually restating what we said. The, the biggest reason I'd ever want to redo an old episode is just so we could do it better. 
Yes. Just say things a little bit better. Yep. Mm-hmm. Explain things a little more thoroughly or clearly. Speak a little more confidently. <laughs> you just with better mics and yes. better editing skills. That that would be the biggest reason I'd want to refresh one. Uh, otherwise, I think just doing a part two mm-hmm. would be the way we'd go about it. Instead of yeah refreshing, it would just be a all right bats again. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the different weird speed. Let's talk about the leaf nose and the big ears and stuff or something like that. The real challenge would be. That in order to ensure that we are not overlapping a whole bunch with what we already talked about, we'd have to listen to that episode. Uh-huh. Uh, which, as we've discussed, we don't want to do. Nope. Nope. <laughs> we need interns or something. <laughs> right. Yeah, take notes, please. And transcribe this. <laughs> Jessica asks, what is the reason you are reluctant to believe Spinosaurus is semi-aquatic or aquatic? So many different groups have returned to the water, I've always been surprised that no dinosaurs did. Uh, agreed that it is surprising that we don't see that trend in dinosaurs the way we see it in other groups. Yes. Uh, and Spinosaurus has come up a bunch in the news and in our episodes. Uh, and I think uh, to set the record straight, uh, we're not reluctant to believe that Spinosaurus was tied to the water in some way. Mm-hmm. Or that it, there could be a semi-aquatic or aquatic dinosaur. Right. Uh, Spinosaurus, there is evidence that does seem to indicate very nicely that Spinosaurus were spending time near water and perhaps hunting uh, along the water's edge or, you know, in the shallow water mm-hmm. or something. That it was water friendly. Yes. There does not seem to be solid evidence that Spinosaurus was an aquatic predator like a shark or even like a crocodile. And I think one of the biggest reasons why we might seem more uh, incredulous might not be the right word, but mm-hmm. more uh, questioning, questioning or more likely to brush that idea aside is because very often when people talk about Spinosaurus being a swimming dinosaur, which it, it very well may have been paddling around or something in the water, sure. but that it was acting like a big crocodile is... Two parts. One, it's not actually shaped like a crocodile. Mm -hmm. Its face is not shaped like... It's long, which is good for catching fish, but it's not shaped like a croc. So the comparison is not as close as a lot of people portray it as when they say that. And they often then are portraying it as swimming after prey, which even crocs don't do. Right. That's Crocodiles (laughs) are not pursuit predators. And if Spinosaurus is swimming like anything, it'd be swimming like them closest right. and they don't do that and it also doesn't seem to be built to be an ambush shoreline predator so even if it's swimming it's probably not swimming after prey it probably swimming from place to place at best right and i think that it's important to separate thinking it's possible for a dinosaur to evolve an aquatic lifestyle which absolutely yeah, uh, sure like you said we are also surprised that we haven't found a lot of evidence of that in dinosaurs that is weird it's a bit odd, and I won't be surprised at all the day we find the dinosaur that was basically a seal, yes. but a dinosaur. Absolutely, that makes sense. But Spinosaurus does not seem to be that dinosaur. Yeah, the current so. evidence doesn't seem to support that. Yeah. Next question's from Lucy. I just listened to the photosynthesis episode. Should I water my succulents at night, considering cam photosynthesis? <laughs> <laughs> this is a very interesting question that neither one of us knows the answer to. So I sent an email to our friend Allie. Allie said this. I'm not going to do an Allie impression. <laughs> I just This is what Allie said. Uh, good question. 
It's actually better to water plants in the morning or during the day so the soil can dry out. If you water at night, the soil doesn't dry out as quickly, which can lead to root rot and other plant diseases. For succulents, they have to absorb the sunlight during the day anyway, so they can multitask and suck up water too. Makes sense. That makes sense to me. Yeah, because then they're just going to store it until later. That's mm-hmm. the whole the benefit of cam photosynthesis. You're just waiting until it's dark. Yeah, so there you go, Lucy. Don't drown your plants. <laughs> I've done that a lot. Oh, well, don't tell Allie. <laughs> no, so don't let her know. Kyle asks, as a hobbyist without any relevant degree, are there ways I can try to get involved in the general field? If so, are there any resources or places you'd recommend checking out? Oh, yeah. If, if you're... Not, you know, looking to become a professional paleontologist by going through and getting a degree. There's still tons of ways. Museums, mm-hmm. like absolutely, you can work as at a museum without having any degree in paleontology or science in general. A lot of the people who work on the fossils of the lab are hobbyists, are enthusiasts that are, you know, they're working there so it's now professional or volunteering there yes uh, in many cases but it is not their education uh so a lot of museums and university labs will take volunteers Mm -hmm. or even entry-level uh positions at you know lab technicians and stuff yep yep uh a lot of the floor staff for places you know educators and and people running summer camps and doing all sorts of stuff like that you can be working alongside the topic there's definitely field crews mm-hmm. where you can volunteer to go out on an expedition because you need a lot of hands and you need people who want to be out there because it's a tough trip sometimes. So absolutely, you can help with the process of paleontology without being a researcher or degree holder. Yeah, I'm, I know there are also citizen science projects with paleontology that you can get involved with. I don't know of any off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but cases where... There are opportunities to help organize information or data or or something. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I'll have to look. But if you go looking for paleontology, citizen science, it's possible that there's stuff out there. Yeah. Next question. Sam asks, what's the biggest blind spot you think most paleo folks have when it comes to areas of paleontology? Invertebrates, plants, genetics, etc. Love to hear what you think. Um, I am tempted to say microbes microbes was just because yep. they're super important and they get overlooked quite a bit uh fungi like we mentioned or like mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier i'm sure there are certain techniques yes that even i don't think about that uh get overlooked or or underused uh i've heard certain on the note of techniques uh things like statistics mm-hmm. uh i've i've we we've known people who have bemoaned how little attention proper and you know more in-depth statistics gets from many studies and researches yeah so yeah there's definitely there's definitely methods and uh all of your little invert things and and non-animal things often uh or non-animal things is what i meant to say often Mm -hmm. get kind of ignored yeah the next question is from the european pine martin what would it take for future scientists to draw a line in the sand and say that around our time, the Phanerozoic Eon ended and the Anthropozoic Eon began? Oh, I don't know what it takes to say an Eon has ended. Yeah. Like, the the two Eon, like the, the division between the Eons that we typically deal with, is 
the Proterozoic and the Phanerozoic, which is the Cambrian explosion. Yes. Like the start of life and ecosystems as we know it. So I guess what would have to happen would be the end of life and ecosystems as we know it. <laughs> like when Earth becomes Coruscant. Yep, yep. Like that would be where it's just all human, it's all industrial and there's no natural ecosystems left. Uh, now maybe we can say we're in a different eon. Yeah, so it's, it's much more likely to happen at one of the smaller timescales. Yes, <laughs> of an exactly. Era or a period <laughs> that will finally go, all right, this is the, this is the human period or era. Next question, Sam, different Sam. What's your favorite discovery that you've been a part of? Ooh, I named a new snake species. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. And I found a little snake and found a horse tooth. And those two are definitely... Yeah, that was pretty great. Those are the discoveries because those were exciting in the field. Yes. <laughs> Lehan asks, are you going to visit any other countries to do an episode about that country while you're there? We've talked about that. Yeah, it'd be awesome. Uh, Australia is always my first vote just because I, I loved when I got to visit Australia as a kid and I always wanted to go back. Sure, sure. Uh, but we have talked about making trips for either episode series or, or you know, deep dives into that area of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't made any plans or like singled out what our first place would be, though. Yeah, uh, it'd be super cool to go to places and talk to people there yes. who know about it and then they can flesh out the information. Yeah, get to talk to local researchers in their home home base. Yes. Next, Sarah asks if the climate warmed up enough in present day to cause mass extinctions. Would the remnants form a new Carboniferous fossil fuels layer or were conditions in the Carboniferous such that it could not happen again? That's a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. Could we get Carboniferous style coal and, 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 and coal seams and, and layers in modern conditions? I, I'm not sure. Well, because you can get coal beds not from the Carboniferous, uh, for sure. Yep. Uh, Carboniferous coal seams are extensive in a way that we don't tend to see at other parts of history. And I don't know that they were necessarily because of extinctions so much as the establishment of new vegetated ecosystems. So I don't know all of the conditions that would lead to extensive coal seams in the future. Yeah, no, I'm not sure. Next up is Buddy with a fun question. Which came first, the amniote or the amniotic egg? <laughs> Very nice twist on it. Uh, I, I mean, amniotes are defined. Yes. Now, in the fossil record, amniotes are not defined by the amniotic egg because we don't have that. True. But if we're talking just from a on-Earth timescale. Yes. Which the, would have occurred first. They and, are equivalent. Yeah, because if you are an amniote because you have an amniotic egg. Yes. And so the first species that had all the features of an amniotic egg would be the first amniote. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, is a, that is a case of the definition is what gets us here. Yeah. So I guess technically you could say that the, the first clutch of eggs laid with all of those, those uh, uh, things intact, those embryos inside, whether or not you would consider them amniotes yet. Right. Or is it that the, is, are, is the amniote the first animal that can lay Ooh. what we would consider an Etsy now where... Yeah, is it, is it the... <laughs> who owns the egg? <laughs> now in the in, layer or the lay in re in reality 
where we draw the line in the fossil record for the first amniote is going to probably be based on features of the skeleton that are associated with amniotes. Yes. So it will come down to whether that feature predates or postdates the egg, which we may never know. Yeah, which almost certainly it's likely that the part that doesn't fossilize as often would would likely go back a ways. Mm-hmm. So it could very likely be that they had those eggs a long time before they had that feature. Right, that, that the amniotic egg officially came before where we draw the line for the first amniote. So that's a fun, that's a fun, that's a fun one. <laughs> Next questions from you into your pants. <laughs> Obviously, invasive species are bad news for native ecosystems, but they do create interesting faunas that would never have been possible without human intervention. Do you guys have any examples of this phenomenon that you find particularly interesting? Mm. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Uh, I always felt a little guilty as a conservationally minded person in when I was living in Florida because of all the invasive species in Florida. And, you know, there's tons that's a famous issue in Florida because mm-hmm. of all the ports going in and out of Florida. Exotic species come through Florida at an irregular rate to the rest of the country. Yes. And Florida has a climate that is conducive to a lot of species from around the world. So tropical animals everywhere and plants Mm -hmm. everywhere can make a home in Florida pretty easily. And it's like, that's terrible. But also it brought us pythons Mm -hmm. and monitor lizards and caimans (laughs) and like, man, like. Stop introducing the awesome animals <laughs> and I'll, I'll be much it'll be much easier for me to feel to condemn it. Yes, <laughs> you're, you're making Florida cooler. Yeah, and I need you to stop so I can get mad That's at a, you about it. We humans, humans somehow making Florida both cooler and hotter at the yes, same time. Yes. <laughs> Our next question is from Melissa, who asks, if paleobotanists could redraw the dividing lines of the geologic timescale, stripping away the animal bias and replacing it with a plant bias, where would the geologic divisions be the same and where would they be different? Hmm. This is another one of those questions that I don't have an answer to, but fortunately, we know a person. Convenient. Allie says, this has been something I've thought about for a while. Basically, she says... I think there would be four major divisions, paleophytic, dendrophytic, mesophytic, and cenophytic. <laughs> paleophytic would be the age of bryophytes, which would be uh, equivalent roughly to the Silurian and Devonian. Dendrophytic, the age of trees, the rise of trees, Carboniferous and Permian. Mesophytic, the age of gymnosperms, Triassic and Jurassic. And cenophytic, the age of angiosperms, Cretaceous and Cenozoic. She says these divisions would be based on origins rather than extinctions, because plants tend to weather mass extinctions rather well. The major differences of the current uh, from the current version would be splitting the Paleozoic and splitting the Mesozoic, and also losing the Cambrian and Ordovician. Yeah, yep. <laughs> Which I think is a super cool concept. <laughs> that is awesome. Thank you, Allie. That is a really, that's a really cool answer. Those would just become the pre-plant. <laughs> yes, the Time. pre-plant, the pre, yes, the pre-phytic. Yes. The pre-phytic times. <laughs> Our next question is from a listener since 2020 and uni student. Oh, that listener. How long do you guys plan on doing the podcast and what would make you stop? 
forever and nothing. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, I, eventually, surely we'll stop. Yeah. Uh, we've never thought about that. It's We uh, don't think to the future very often. No. I'm sure it, it, it would be a mixture of either when physically it's just not conceivable to keep up that that regular of a of sure responsibility that like, i'm old now and i want to <laughs> i want to be retired so I, I might we might still make it but it might be one a month or just a couple of year i like to think that we would stop the podcast if something better came along yes like we came up with something better like all right we're retiring this podcast so that we can free up time to do this new cool thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that is you know even more we're expanding on the on the concept yeah so that uh, or we grow to hate each other. Yeah, that would do it, too. Yeah. So like we, if have, we have some sort of dramatic falling out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if the new X-Men stuff, I think, sucks and you love it. Right. That's so Well, I come home from work one day and you're recording a podcast with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> like you're here in your room sitting across with a microphone and I'm like, what's going on here? And you're like, I can explain. But then you don't explain. No, I don't. Explain. And then I leave. Uh, and then that's it. That's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go start a new podcast. Start a new podcast. With your buddies from college. Just to get back at you. <laughs> like when you come over to visit, I'm like, come here, record with me. Is he looking? Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, next question. Nathan asks, what sci-fi franchise has your favorite alien creatures? Oh, there's so many good ones. Well. So I'm sure people would expect me to say Star Wars since they are all about sci-fi creatures. Sure. Uh, and Star Wars is a ton of fun. But a lot of theirs are nonsense animals. Yeah. Like. Well, uh, they're very disconnected from each other yeah. and they're just sort of little one offs. And, and there's a lot of t- I mean, there's definitely times where there's logic put into it, but there's a bunch of times where th- there's no logic put to why that creature's on that planet, particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are times where they do stuff that just doesn't doesn't work. In the new Tales of the Jedi's, there's a bunch of just animals. There's just a dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's just bear. It's yep. It's there's a lot of stuff that like that will happen. where I go, no, come on. Uh, so <laughs> Alien is my favorite sci-fi mm-hmm. creature. Like that, the xenomorph from Alien and Aliens and the franchise is my favorite, hands down. I think it looks awesome. I love the concept that the host changes what kind of xenomorph comes out so that it is better adapted to whatever ecosystem or environment it has invaded. Mm-hmm. And I love the queen and eggs and facehugger life cycle. I like the various interpretations that have been taken on it. Yeah. And uh, with modern stuff, Avatar would be way up there, but I have lots of complaints about the Navi. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Deoxys is pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Next question from Turkani. What sort of video games do you think best capture natural selection and evolution? I would love to play games while nudging life forms one way or another down an evolutionary path just to see where it ends up. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be fantastic. I don't know if there are games yeah. like that. Like, Spore was the game that was famous for trying to do that. That, that was yes. what it was marketed as. And Spore is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't at all. No, not very evolution realistic. No. And it, I've, I've seen, like educational games that are kind of like evolution simulators, but they tend to be very simple and very straightforward. Yeah, that it's a lesson in game form, not a game that teaches a lesson. Right. Uh, There was a museum interactive game somewhere. I can't remember where this was, where it was an evolution game 
it was a natural selection game where they would bring up a bunch of bugs on the screen in a natural background and you, the child in the museum, would have to point, you know, tap as many of the bugs as you could in a limited time frame. And then generation by generation, you'd see certain colors become less and less common. I think if I were to design one, this is the idea that came up mm-hmm. while sitting here just now, is it would be a, a roguelite, a roguelike, I can't remember mm-hmm. if it's like or light. One of uh, those. Where you run through and get as far as you can go until you die, and then the game just starts over. You know, those, those you get, you're, you're not progressing the game, you're just seeing how well you can do this run to represent generations. Yeah. And that each run, a random change would be applied to your character. That could impede you, Mm-hmm. Or could help you, and the distance you get each run affects whether or not that feature is persistent yeah. to the next what, generation. What you get next time, yeah. If you go half as far as you did last time because of this new feature that slowed you down, that feature is now deleted from the gene pool. Yeah. That kind of concept, and and honestly, an evolution like to really get the idea across would probably work better as an MMORPG, yeah, or as a as an online style game, yeah. Where tons of people are doing that. Yes. So you have a population. Mm-hmm. And then what you get with your next character is not only dependent on how you did, but how everybody did. So you'd have a mass, a worldwide evolution simulator. That could be pretty cool. Yep. Man, somebody make that. Well, and you could, it would also be neat because whatever the feature is, wouldn't have to be a purely negative or positive. It's like, we your made, color changed yeah, or something. Made the color different or we made your, you know, your arms longer, which could be a detriment. But if you change your play style yes. to make it an advantage and change the behavior of your species, now that feature might be beneficial. Yes. So if you can think your way around whatever mutation has been applied and make it a benefit that we don't know what mutations will be beneficial or detrimental because... Yeah, it depends on the situation and whether that species can adapt to this new feature that has been introduced. And then we just have data. Yes. And it would just be a massive collection. Then you could look at like the trajectory over time. That'd be cool. And you could have both. You could have a single player mode. So this is your personal species, Mm -hmm. but then an online mode where you're being affected by everyone else's data. So you might see features showing up and persisting, even though it's not helping you. Yes. But everyone else is doing great. (laughs) So now you're having to play a much more complicated game cool. and multiple features could be showing up at once. I hope we have game designers in our in our audience. Yeah. Nathan asks, I've noticed that necromancy in fantasy suffers heavily from vertebrate bias when clearly invertebrates would make superior minions. Have you ever seen invertebrates used this way in any media? Uh, I mean, the closest thing I can think of is insects. Uh, insect swarms will often be used for like necromantic, you know, like mummy has insect swarms and stuff. And yeah, yeah. like, but that's usually more from a carrion perspective than I'm right. not resurrecting. Not undead insects. Yeah, I'm not resurrecting griffin flies. Yeah, I had undead insects in that campaign that I ran for D&D. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, you'd think that uh, inverts would be, well, especially in a fantasy scenario where oftentimes invertebrates will be large animals and you'll have car-sized bugs and stuff, yeah, which would be very handy. I think the reason vertebrates get the focus is because they are more resilient to decomposition because of their skeleton. Well, and also vertebrate 
decomposition is easier to recognize and Mm -hmm. see. Like, I don't know what a zombie ant looks like. Like, is their exoskeleton falling apart? Are there... Are you a husk? Right. Are (laughs) are you going to have recognizable features of a dead thing? Yeah. From from an artistic standpoint, can you represent that in a way that makes it clear? Right. That a a human audience member is going to go, oh, oh, zombie. Because it's not going to be goopy and drippy like like rotting flesh. Yes. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree that it would be interesting to see necromancers using inverts more uh but i also think that's why it because you you can use a zombie or a skeleton when you do a vert and both of those are very recognizable and very recognizably undead yes (laughs) (laughs) next question from jonas what video game or other media has the best most plausible alien ecosystem uh Hmm. from other medias there's tons of like uh, avatar is a right. very good alien ecosystem. Very cool. Even if I have nitpicks about the very human cat <laughs> Navi. <laughs> but that is very cool. As far as video games go, uh, it's not alien as in that it's not sci-fi in, in space. But Dragon Age, um, mm. that game has a really cool biology feature to it in that a lot of the monsters you meet, they explain the ecological roles and how they interact and even how they breed like they give a whole breeding and social structure to dragons that have them with a big main female with many male suitors that gather around her mm-hmm. and that then she just kind of is constantly giving birth to small baby dragons that are numerous and die out in droves and only a few get to the be- so like they did a whole new ecology for dragons they even do it for the demonic bad guys and how they function. So they gave a lot of thought to how the fantasy magical world functions on a ecological standpoint, which I really liked. Cool. You don't get that in fantasy games very often, so I really appreciated that one. So that, that might be my vote, even if it's not plausible because it's magic, but still, <laughs> they put a lot of effort into it. Trent asks... With more fossils of large dinosaurs, such as Spinosaurus's tail section, still being found today... How many undiscovered large species of dinosaurs do you think are out there, or have we found them all? Uh, certainly uh, haven't found them all. Tons. Uh, they're, yes. they're probably just oodles. Yes, yes. Thousands and thousands at minimum. <laughs> like, tons of large dinosaurs and new species of mm-hmm. large dinosaurs. Yeah, we are, our record is very scant, and yeah. we find new large species all the time. Well, especially because there's whole regions of the plant that we really have not been able to do Almost any notable paleontology in. Mm-hmm. Like Antarctica absolutely has tons of large dinosaurs. Yes. That we've just <laughs> not been able. Two miles of ice. Yep. So, yes, there's definitely lots. And it may not be that they've just somehow missed us, but that we just haven't gone to those areas yet. Yeah. Next up, Carrick asks, what is one assumption that humans tend to make about the nature of life that you would like to see proven wrong? Hmm. I, I have a number of these, and some of them are just the the perception that a lot of people have, you know, from, like, questions I get at the aquarium, which is just very anthropomorphizing life, that they have the same goals and wants that we do, and that that's not how life... You can't apply the emotional state of a person to any other animal, necessarily, and especially not to plants and ecosystems. Right. Uh, But I think the one that irks me the most that I see very, very often is that 
humans have thrown nature off balance. And without us, nature would be in balance for good vibe reasons. Right. Like it's often (laughs) perceived that like we've thrown things out of whack, but otherwise it would be peacefully in balance. Right. No, it's in balance due to frozen battle lines between species (laughs) that are forcibly keeping Uh, each other in balance through competition. In a constant state of flux. Yes. With preserved components. Yeah. Like, even when it seems super stable, it's stable that way because it's the the organisms are at a stalemate between each other as they all try to compete and or kill one another. Or changes are happening just slowly. Yes. That we're not noticing on a on a rapid time scale. So it in it so there is balance, but it is a balance maintained through competition. Right. Not a and you know, even when it's fluctuating, even if it's staying balanced as it flux, it's balanced because it has to be otherwise one species would dominate and that's what happens when it does become unbalanced which happens naturally all the time right well and i think it's very similar to when we've we've talked about this with conservation the idea that there is a pristine version of nature yes that there is a perfect version that we need to go back to or aim for uh, but there isn't. Nature no. is not static. Nature is always changing and adjusting and shifting and ecosystems are always uh, uh, in a state of changing from what they were to what they will be. Yes. And this irks me because it's an incorrect view of nature uh, and can breed misconceptions like that with conservation. But mm-hmm. also, I think it is a big part of what leads to the idea of natural, the term natural, equaling better and good and unharmful. Right. Mm-hmm. That if you have natural solutions, natural food, natural this, it means it is superior somehow because we've taken natural to mean the good, beautiful nature version. Right. And nature is often not beautiful. It is. Yes. <laughs> it is just what it is. And so, yeah, that that's my big one. Yeah. Robert asks, Hollywood has commissioned you to come up with the next big monster movie. What do you pitch to make a novel, exciting movie that doesn't mangle science too badly? Our hippo movie. Yeah. <laughs> hungry, hungry hippos. Hungry, hungry hippos. <laughs> Which are the uh, introduced hippos in South America. Yep. Uh, turning into monsters. Also, the other option is that you just make up something completely ridiculous mm-hmm. so that you don't have to worry about science. Yes. <laughs> you just go, all right, Godzilla, and now... Do I, uh, whatever. Yeah, and if we didn't make the hippo movie, I would just make a croc movie, which is just Blackwater. Yes. So that movie exists. <laughs> <laughs> Chris asks, if something could be frozen in Antarctic ice, similar to the mammoths in the Arctic, what would be the most likely and how well-preserved would it possibly be? Hmm. This is an interesting question because mammoths are preserved in permafrost. Yes. Typically, they're, they're not preserved in, like, a sheet of ice. Yeah, like glaciers and, and stuff. that's a lot of what Antarctica is, is that it's sheets of ice. But I, I would assume that you could certainly have ancient frozen sediments mm-hmm. within and around Antarctica. And I don't know how far back, like, the ice sheets of Antarctica go back tens of millions of years. Yeah. Could there be sediments underneath those that are frozen and preserved effectively as they were and would that be because in the arctic we in the permafrost we don't have ice that goes back permanently for all that long 
But underneath Antarctica, could you get frozen stuff from the Miocene? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you could have that. I, I don't know enough about the physics and and cycles, I guess, of Antarctic ice. Yeah. Like, like around the edges, I'd assume you're getting melting uh-huh. and, and, and refreezing. So you wouldn't have enough permanent ice in many areas to have things going back all that far. But like, is there how much overturn of ice in the the middle of the continent is there just from like geologic movement or something like mm-hmm. is the ice is that ice at the bottom just the ice that was at the bottom right. is that just 30 million year old ice what i, I don't know what? i don't know that that is breaking my brain a little bit mm-hmm. to consider that's all right well now i want to know good good question chris yes <laughs> Ricardo asks, what are the factors that make oceanic dispersal possible? Do we have examples of or studies of this kind of migration happening nowadays, or is it just a hypothesis? Uh, we absolutely have examples of oceanic dispersal, uh, of animals dispersing across oceans from one landmass to another. Uh, well, we'll f- occasionally find an animal like a you know crocodilian mm-hmm. or tortoise that got swept away in a storm and floated across the ocean. Or mats of vegetation that have carried, you know, snails or mice or something from one place to another. Uh, those are thought to be mechanisms for how certain species might disperse from one landmass to another. Uh, and we absolutely have those. Uh, yes. We'll see examples. I don't know that we've often seen examples of them then colonizing the new place. Yeah. Uh, if it's just one or two of them that made it. But the idea that individuals can make it from one place to another, we, yeah, we certainly can see stuff like that. Yeah, we've been able to track that when we find the the individual or, or you know, small group that washes up somewhere and through various techniques be able to say, you're definitely not from here. You came from, you know, based on your genetics or the foliage you're on, you came from that other place. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, for sure. It is more than a hypothesis. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, there is solid support for it happening. Uh, as far as it having like the, the various effects it could have had, that is more under research and debate because. Right. And when exactly it mm-hmm. happened and to which lineages. Yeah, that is, you know, fossil record. Yes, exactly. can be tricky. It's hard for us to determine that. All right. Next questions from Sarah May. I'm working on a doctorate myself and I have to know. What method do y'all use to wade through academic papers for research? Keyword search, category, release date, etc. Uh, good question. Mm-hmm. How do we wade through? Uh, so when searching for stuff uh, online, Google Scholar, of course, is very useful. I will often uh, sort by release date yes. to look for recent stuff because the hope is to find something recent that references a lot of older studies. Yes. That, that is more up to date uh, on a particular topic. And for us with note taking, that works very well because we if you're referencing another paper, then you're referencing the, the summation of that info that we're going to summarize in yes. our episode. So if we're looking for a topic like, you know, live birth, which we did recently, looking, doing a Google Scholar search and seeing what. Are there recent papers that talk about this topic? Do they have references therein? Is there a nice review paper? Oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, Sometimes we'll also look for news. Like, is there a news story Mm -hmm. that became popular recently that was written about in in sort of popular journalism that might 
mention some scientists' names that we might chase down or might itself mention some of the history that gives us some keywords to keep going. Uh, when we're looking for academic uh, papers for uh, podcast episodes, one thing we'll often do is go to Wikipedia yes. and look at what the references are in Wikipedia. Yep. They're not always the best ones or the most up-to-date ones, but it is an area where someone has done some of the work for us already. <laughs> they've They've already collected a selection of papers so that can sometimes be a good starting point yes indeed absolutely and and that also helps because it's related to the topic so it's this paper was referenced in this wikipedia article in this category so you go all right well that's the topic i was looking for is the reproduction of this animal and you cited all of these in the reproduction paragraph yes so i can i can (laughs) sort it out a little bit easier so yeah so that's some of it sometimes it's uh reading news articles or the wikipedia page can also be helpful in identifying keywords. Yep, yep. So, like, we might be going into a topic that, you know, ants. And you might say, all right, ants, and left to our own devices, we would just look ant fossils, ant blah, 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 blah. blah, blah. But, you know, you go to the Wikipedia article, and it might say, here is the most well-studied family of ants. And you go, oh, okay, that's a good keyword. Yes, to see if that comes up, you know, so sometimes the non-academic sources can point you in the right direction. Well, and that, it'll also help for me when they will mention something about like, you know, a, a key group of ants for this concept, you mm-hmm. know, for the understanding of their social structure is leaf cutters. And I go, oh, I did not think to Google Scholar search leaf cutter ants. Yes. And I'll do that. And a whole bunch of leaf cutter ant responses will come back. That weren't in just the ants section, and those will have new information. Yeah. Now, for our purposes, for the kind of uh, things when we're doing for the podcast, we are looking for broad information. For, like, actually looking for research references, it can be much more daunting, because then it is more exhaustive uh, looking for various different keywords and making sure you're covering all the keywords. Well, and you might not be able to just stick to the most recent ones like we do because you may need to directly reference that old paper that this recent one was referencing. Yes. And in those cases, uh, back in the day of grad school, I would find it extremely helpful to ask people yeah. and just say, hey, you study this thing, professor so-and-so. Please point me to the most recent example that you know about. Uh, And then that often hopefully will be helpful. Yep. But it's a lot. It it is a lot. (laughs) Uh, And I I often have moments where I I feel the way we publish papers, if it were different, we might be able to sort and search it a bit more neatly. (laughs) Our next question is from Joe, who asks, Star Wars or Star Trek? Joe also includes... Both is an acceptable answer, and so is neither. Thank you for your permission. Uh, We won't need that. Yep. (laughs) But I have somehow Mm -hmm. never seen an episode of Star Trek. Yeah. I saw the 2009 movie, and maybe the sequel to that movie, uh, with Chris Pine and and, and, uh, uh, Siler. I've never seen Star Trek. (laughs) I'm sure I'd like it. I've never seen it, and I've never... Got you know, made time to watch it. Yeah, uh, I do quite like Star Wars. Yes, I'm definitely more <laughs> Star Wars than Star Trek, even though I've watched bits and pieces of most of the Star Trek shows, I think. Not not the recent ones. I know that there's uh, Lower Decks and Picard and uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember the other one and the other ones. Uh, 
I haven't seen any of the recent stuff, and I've seen a couple of the newer movies and a couple of the older movies. Uh, so I've seen decent chunks of Star Trek, and I like Star Trek a bunch, but for extremely different reasons than I like Star Wars. Star Trek is a really great philosophical, you know, moral and ethical investigation into the ideas of sci-fi concepts and intergalactic, you know, interactions and stuff, which is all very cool. Star Trek does not hold my attention as much because every alien is shaped like a person. <laughs> and the only robots they have are either the bad ones or data. <laughs> not enough, not enough aliens, not enough robots. And then there's just not creatures like they don't have many times where they're just dealing interacting with animals because it's you can't have a debate with an animal sure uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so like star wars has more cool sci-fi the ships are cooler the weapons are cooler the creatures are cooler the robots are cooler and that's what i like sci-fi for mm -hmm. like i'm cool with examining our society through the lens of science fiction that's tons of fun i want a cool thing that goes Bew! Right. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> yeah. Pew, pew. Pop, pop. I, want to, I want to go, oh, that's a cool looking <laughs> ship. Yep. Yep. That's, that's, <laughs> I like sci-fi for all that stuff. <laughs> Next question's from Keegan. What are your thoughts on a chickenosaurus? Would it really teach us much about non-avian dinosaurs? Are the ethical concerns worth the possible knowledge gained? Ah, so the chickenosaurus is this hypothetical idea of breeding chickens to have the traits of their dinosaurian ancestors to basically look like a dromaeosaur yes. or something. And I think it also with the mentality of unlocking old genes and stuff like the teeth right. and stuff like that. And there have been studies that have messed with chicken DNA in development, de developing embryos to see, can they develop teeth? Can, does the snout change shape? And that can be really handy for understanding how certain genes are linked to certain features and the development of certain features and how might that tell us stuff about the evolution of that organism. Uh, the idea of unlocking the ancestral traits and then growing a chicken that looks and acts like a dinosaur uh, seems both like a thing that we couldn't actually do. Yep. Like that's not really how it works. And a thing that we probably wouldn't learn very much from because we've created something that is nothing that that is neither chicken nor the actual thing yep. of its ancestors. Uh, and to do that, instead of just we're messing with chicken embryos and investigating developmental changes, to actually create that animal, I think, would, in fact, be highly ethically concerning. Yes. And yeah, 100% agree. It's, it's a lot of the same issues that the idea of cloning a mammoth comes to, mm -hmm. that it would not be a mammoth as they were. Right. So we can't draw direct conclusions for its behavior and stuff. And this is one where even a further step that we'd be making it a dinosaur, you know, a non-avian dinosaur, based on what we think non-avian dinosaurs were like. Because those genes aren't just there. Like the chicken's genome does not have all the ingredients to make a velociraptor. Exactly. Like it has some elements that it shares with that, like teeth and stuff. But... You wouldn't get an ancestor. You'd get some weird hodgepodge built of whatever scraps are left in the chicken's genome directed in the direction that we personally think it should look. Yes, it's it's a so, very biased approach to that. 
it makes me think of uh, in a similar vein to this, or it may even be related to it, that there was a either just a video or a, I can't remember if it was research, but where they tied a, a stick to the tail of a chicken. Yes, that was re- that was an actual study yep. where they were they put like a plunger looking thing on the butt of a chicken to see does having a long tail back there affect how they walk. Yeah, and it did. Mm-hmm. But and I don't think the researchers said this, but I saw lots of things discussing it that the response very much was they put a tail on it and then it started walking like a dinosaur. Right. Which, once again, we don't know what dinosaurs walk like. No. We've never watched a non-avian dinosaur walk. Yes. So it gave us insights into what those animals might have walked like. It told us for sure what a chicken walks like with a stick on its butt, which may be similar to how dromaeosaurs and theropods walked. Uh, Now, on the note of the chickenosaurus, I don't know that anyone actually seriously intends to build a chickenosaurus. Yeah. Like that sounds like one of those things that has become the common thing to say. But even the ones when they grew teeth, that was just early developing embryos. That those are lab studies, yes. not not actual making hybrid animals. For sure. Here's a question from Captain Placoderm. Whales today are the largest animals on Earth, but as we've seen through the history of our planet, species come and go and others replace them in their niche. In your opinion, what other species could realistically replace whales and consistently reach massive sizes in a post-cetacean world? Hmm. If we were to lose whales... Somehow. Through some some bizarre, unimaginable circumstance yeah. that would cause whales to disappear. Uh, uh, only, that could only happen through some act of extreme malice. Sure. Um, I'd be tempted to say that fish would do it. But fish have had hundreds of millions of years to do it. Yeah, they've had lots of chances. And they haven't done it for some reason. Uh, so I'm tempted to say that uh, reptiles would do it because mm-hmm. they've done it before. Mm-hmm. We've had ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs and mosasaurs that have reached whale sizes. So I'm on team. Bring the lizards back to the ocean and get mosasaurs again. See, I think pinnipeds. Oh, that yeah, that's also a good point. That's a less exciting choice. Yeah, but I think I think we would get giant filtering crab-eating seals. That'd be pretty cool. That are using teeth. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah, I no, think... That's a good... That's not a bad thought. Just whale-sized walruses. <laughs> well, cause, yeah, because they're already there and yes. they're already big. Yeah, yeah, a number of them are already the size of small-toothed toothed whales. Yes. Like, a walrus and many large dolphins are equivalent to each other, so... It's only a step up from there. Yeah, that that's probably true. Which would be awesome. Very cool. <laughs> With their little feet tail. <laughs> Next up, Megan asks, is there a topic that you would love to cover, but that no one has asked you about? And if so, what is it? Hmm. I'm always torn when we get this kind of question, because I don't want to be like, hey, everyone, request this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, request the thing that I want to <laughs> talk about. Psst, that feels like cheating. <laughs> we've done. I mean, we've done it. We've mentioned stuff like that on the podcast yeah. before. As we said, but then again, it's our podcast. That's <laughs> true. So do whatever I want to do. Say it's not cheating. For a while, cheating. pterosaurs was in this category. Yes. Like for like two years of the podcast, we were like, someone request pterosaurs. What's going on? What's wrong? <laughs> I have actually had a topic in my head for years. That no one's ever requested. There is no request on our massive request list for this. Uh, I remember thinking of it many years ago and then thinking, oh, boy, someday, someday someone will request that. Uh, and it is the long term evolution experiment. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, Richard Lenski's mm-hmm. lab. Mm-hmm. So cool. Yes. Such a cool thing. Mostly, I want to learn more about it. Yes. I want uh, you to learn more about it and then tell me about it. That's one. I, I, I've had that in my head for like four years. Yep. <laughs> I've been like, surely someday someone will request this. And it has not happened. <laughs> uh, so I'm sure it will continue to not happen. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Next up, we have a question from Laura who asks... Why can't land animals drink seawater? When and why did we lose this ability? Uh, good question. I don't know when we lost it, but the why is most likely that as we moved on to land, we moved away from salt water because mm-hmm. in land it's fresh water. Yes. Like, generally speaking, there are like saltwater lakes and stuff. Sure. But in general, if you're on land, it's fresh water. And if you're not using the genes that allow you to have the features to drink seawater, then those features are going to typically get lost in evolution. And freshwater and saltwater function differently alongside our bodies. Yes. Right. Our bodies have a certain amount of salt content. So if the water we're drinking, the water we're bringing into our system is too salty or not salty enough. There is a a balance that we need to maintain. And so for one reason or another, we've evolved to coexist with a freshwater level of salt. Well, and part of that reason is that freshwater is toxic to a saltwater organism. Right. And vice versa. And vice versa. Because if you have saltwater and freshwater next to each other, they want to balance the salinity. That's what systems in nature do. That's what that's what entropy is all about. And if it's not balanced, it messes with our internal organs and stuff because it's going to balance. And for us, the salt water (laughs) is going to pull the water out of our cells to make it less salty. And in a freshwater, it's going to put too much water into the cells. Yes. And you will get water poisoning in a saltwater animal with freshwater and you'll be poisoned by salt, basically. If you're a freshwater, freshwater tolerant animal, uh, there are lots of land animals that have gone back to being able to process salt water, but they have to have ways to get rid of the excess salt. Yes. Crocs have salt glands in their tongue. Mm-hmm. Lots of pinnipeds have it. I think they, they in their uh, nose and eyes. Uh, will, yeah. Birds will, like seabirds will yep. have it. They have sneeze it out of their nose. Yep. <laughs> uh, so you need a way to get rid of the excess salt once you've become a freshwater tolerant organism. Yeah. These have been a whole bunch of good questions. Uh, we're going to do one more. All right. Because, we, boy, it's been a long and fun <laughs> discussion. Our last question that we will wrap up the Q&A with is from Jackie, who asks, What about the podcast has made you most proud this year? Brag about yourselves a little. Oh. Thanks, Jackie. Uh, I mean, we five years. Five years. That's pretty cool. Croc and Snake Month were awesome. That was really cool. That was it wasn't quite on a whim, but it was something new and different that we 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 thought up to try to do. And it went really well. And we're excited to do more stuff like that in the future. On a smaller scale, when we got new patrons while at a talk at Dragon Con. (laughs) Yeah, we were doing the panel <laughs> and I had my phone out on the desk to, to, to keep look at the time, yeah. you know, because I, I have to know the time so that I'm not talking forever. <laughs> and like as we were getting started, I think I looked down and I had a little notification that we had gotten new patrons. Yep. And I was like, did somebody 
who just joined Patreon? And someone in the crowd raised their hand. Yeah. I was like, that's awesome. And then like three more people did that. Yep. That was very, very cool. That is really, that was really <laughs> awesome. It It is by far one of the most like celebrity-esque moments. Yeah. <laughs> that we felt. And so that was very cool. Um, we do, We've done a bunch of new stuff this year. Mm-hmm. Like we launched the Discord. Um, which I'm very proud of us old guys for doing. Yep. Uh, because we had to get help. Yep. Because we had young people <laughs> yes. do it. <laughs> yep. We we've made a bunch of changes on the back end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we've we have actually I think we've been really good this year about having meetings. Yes. Between the two of us and being very proactive and very honest and upfront about how things are going and where we want things to go and and how we're feeling about the way that, you know, the schedule and everything is going. I think we've gotten much better at talking to each other about things and planning for things and and recognizing what we need as people and as podcasters and structuring our plans around that. Absolutely. It's things have felt much more professional and and purposeful Mm -hmm. in how we've been doing it this year so yeah Yeah. we've also uh, i think had a lot more contact with our community this year yes uh we've been doing our patreon live streams where we get to interact with patrons which have quickly become one of my favorite things those are great to do Uh, those are fantastic they're so much fun we have uh, been doing the discord so we get to interact with people on Discord. We went to DragonCon. We got to meet people. We're getting a bit. We're getting more and more in touch with our community, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is also a very cool thing. Yes. Yeah. It's it's been a good year. Yeah. We've also had uh, multiple things reach out to us this year to say, "Hey, can you collaborate with us?" Yeah. Uh, which fe- always feels very nice. Yes. Uh, so yeah, actually, this year. Um, we did the Leakies episode. Mm-hmm. I was so happy <laughs> to get to invite Meredith Johnson on the podcast. That was a proud moment for me where I was like, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. I do, do you think maybe? And then Meredith was like was super polite and super nice and great to talk to. And she was like complimenting us mm-hmm. on our podcast. And I was like, what? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very proud. That was that was pretty nice for me. I'm a big fan of origin stories. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm also proud of us for making it through another end of the year Q&A. We did. We made it through. We did it. This felt like a big one. We'll this, see how the... <laughs> this did feel big. I think our recording is just above five hours. It's going to edit down once we cut out our, our breaks and our, our sure, sure. quiet times, but it, it's it's a chunk of a recording. Yeah. We always have fun doing these. These are a lovely way to wrap up the year. Uh, we like getting the questions. I, I love that we keep getting new, different questions. Yes. Uh, that's very fun that we keep getting to mix it up and talk about new stuff. We got a lot of Pokemon questions this yeah. year, which keep that up. That was that's, fun. That's great. It was. It, we, yeah. No, lots of good questions this year. There are a few that every every year there's always a few where it's like, wow, I I that's a question I wish I had thought of before just now. Yes. Because I would I would like to have been <laughs> pondering on that question. <laughs> This is the last thing of the year. We, we released this right at the end of the year, uh, which means 2022 is over. Our five year of the podcast is over. We are now like our, our whole celebration for this year. Mm-hmm. We have done it. <clears throat> uh, now our six year anniversary is around the corner. Yep. 
About to turn six. Uh, thank you to everybody. Thank you to everyone who request who who sent in questions. Uh, we did not get through the entire list because tons of people send in questions. So if we did not get to your question, uh, we are uh, we apologize. Send in a question next year, and hopefully we'll get to it. Or hey, join us on the Discord, or join us on Patreon, and and join the Patreon live streams, uh, and see if you find an opportunity to ask your question there. Yeah. Uh, we, we're doing more of these interactions, so there's more opportunities. Absolutely, we do one of each of those every month, and yes. so you have tons of chances. Yeah, our patrons get to ask us questions all the time. Yeah. Also, patron questions. Yes. They get to submit for us to answer on the episodes. So there are other ways to get your questions to us if we didn't get to yours. So sorry, but thank you for listening and sticking through this episode. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question. Thank you to all of the patrons who have supported us throughout this year. Thank you to everyone who joined us for the first time this year. Mm -hmm. We got a ton of new patrons and a ton of new listeners. Our download numbers keep going up. More people keep finding the podcast. Thanks to everyone who joined in on the Discord and filled that up. Yeah. Thanks to everyone who leaves comments on the YouTube videos and who sends us emails. We read the emails. We read the comments. Even if we don't respond to all of them, we really appreciate uh, seeing that kind of interaction from our audience. Uh, thanks to Allie mm-hmm. for keeping this podcast going. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to all of our guests who've joined us. Uh, it 2022 for this podcast has been a pretty exciting and fun year. Yeah. Uh, and thanks to everyone who supports us who doesn't get seen. Yes. Right. Thanks to Corey uh, who mm-hmm. helps us set up the Discord. And thanks to our mods who help us set up the Discord. Thanks to the people at DragonCon who are helping us do stuff. Yep. That we don't otherwise get to do or who just help us to show us around some of the key features of Dragon Con that we want to do more of. Uh, we both have girlfriends. Yes. Who are very supportive and helpful. Extremely. <laughs> so thank you to them. Thank you to both of them immensely. <laughs> uh, yeah, this podcast, this this podcast is a group effort. Like it's us mm-hmm. who are doing most of it. But yeah, everyone who contributes, we really appreciate whether they're lending their voice to the podcast or they're lending some financial support through Patreon or whether they just listen and tell their friends about it. Uh, we really appreciate that. No, it, it is a huge part of the, the, the what has kept the motivation going and and thriving and our energy up is the fact that we get such amazing interaction and responses from all of you listening and, and following us. Yeah. We hope you all have had a nice holiday season. We hope you have a happy new year. 2023, we will be back with new episodes every fortnight. New topics requested by our listeners. Posts on the blog. Bonus stuff. Silver screen science and spooky. All of that's going to continue. Until we don't like each other. Until we don't like until our inevitable falling out. Yeah. Uh, at which point we will monetize... The tragedy in separate directions. And then we will make a croc and a snake specific rival podcast. And then we'll have a reunion several years later uh, (laughs) and bring in the biggest audiences we've ever had. Yes. uh, Just as we planned. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to everybody who listens and supports us. Continue to send in your requests for episode topics. Continue to send us your questions. Continue to send us your kind words and your compliments and your thoughts continue to keep your criticisms to yourself (laughs) and join us uh in 2023 for more common descent it's been a pleasure bye everybody bye 
Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.